What's going on in the United States with the student loan system is criminal. It's a good old boy system that allows, you know, very wealthy people, banks and insurance companies and stuff to make a fortune off of these kids, turn them into indentured servants. And the consequences for our society is brutal. That was my good friend, Paul Katz, and we're going to have an amazing podcast right now with him, and you're going to get to hear more great tidbits like that opening one that you just did. Paul wrote a book recently under the pen name P.L. Katz. It's his debut novel, and it's called Disorder. It's a fascinating book and super relevant to our time right now when so many people are being affected by these student loans by the endless wars, by government corruption, by big business uh, interests getting greedy. And this spin on the legal thriller novel uh, genre is, uh, is super impressive, and I, and I hope you will check it out. You can go to plcats.com. You can order a copy of the book there. You can order a signed copy of the book. You can get the book on Amazon. It's in paperback and Kindle format. It's also going to be on audible very soon so pay attention for that because it will be out on audible you can also get it in barnes and noble and if you're local in boulder at the boulder bookstore very shortly well that's about it uh if you like the show and you want to support the show please leave us a five-star rating and review on apple podcasts you can also go to patreon.com slash mike brank and donate uh, as little as a dollar a month on there like to thank our sponsors you can find all the links in the show notes navigating psychedelics synchro and hemp bombs uh but uh without further ado let's get into this really great conversation with my good friend author of the debut novel disorder pl cats thanks enjoy psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third story window Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. Sounds fun. That's cool. You know, we got some good weed. You know, we got some good music. We got nice, comfortable chairs. You know, up here in the snowy mountains, we're living a pretty good life, right? I think it couldn't be better. Yeah. Well, it's always possible that it could be better. <laughs> it's, a, it's always possible to be better. That's that's 100% true. But I think there is something to be said about really, you know, just being aware of your situation so that you can appreciate it right uh, definitely i mean i and i'm definitely living the life yeah you know I'm, I'm i'm comfortable in a beautiful house in a beautiful place and 
and then I get to travel. I travel a lot. I mean, I, I've been to, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I've been to a lot of places, and I'm still curious to go to other places. Um, I think one of the problems that we have in this country is that the people that are running the country don't travel enough. They don't get a chance to see what's going on in other places of the world. And they sort of... They definitely know what's going on in the Middle East. No, they <laughs> They definitely don't know what's going on in the Middle East. And, They'd like and, to think that they do. Well, they always like to think that they do. They yeah. think they know what's going on in the Ukraine. Yeah. You know, they're wrong about the Ukraine. What's going on? Did I tell you about the Ukraine? Tell me about the Ukraine. Well, first, the Ukraine is Russia. Russia started there, and Kiev Rus was the beginning of Russia. And so uh, the people that live in the eastern part of Ukraine consider themselves Russians. I had two grandmothers from, the, from Kiev, or the Kiev area, and both of them, when I asked them where they were from, they said they were from Russia. Yeah, I had an ex-girlfriend. She was born in the Ukraine, mm -hmm. but she always said she was from Russia. Right. I mean, uh, my, my grandmothers referred to it as Mother Russia. They speak Russian. Oh, and they spoke Russian for sure. And I, you know what? I don't think either of them spoke Ukrainian. I don't know. I didn't ask them, but I don't think so. And there's a lot of people who live in eastern Ukraine that don't speak Ukrainian. And that's one of the problems that was... Uh, that's one of the reasons there were so many problems when the United States, incidentally interfered in their election yeah you're talking is it was that the crimea situation yes yeah i remember that like right yeah victoria newland like went over there and she was trying to you know incite some some riots and get some people to start overthrowing the government i, I had a, a guest on the show robbie martin who was talking about this and uh i think lindsey graham and mccain they were pretty heavily involved in that as well Trying to trying to create some chaos in the country, cause some division. That's just pure ignorance. I mean, Crimea was always Russia. The the, the history of Crimea is that um, when Khrushchev became the premier of Russia, um, well, he became the premier of Russia. He had been the president of the Ukraine, and he was a war hero from the Second World War. So he becomes premier of Russia. He starts realizing that he's losing his power. And he's thinking, well, you know, if I'm not going to be premier of Russia, maybe I'll go back and do something in, in Ukraine. And so he wanted Ukraine to be a more powerful part of Russia. So he took Crimea, which was uh, structurally right next to Ukraine, you know, um, and he made it part of Ukraine. And that made the Ukraine very, very important to Russia because Russia only has two ports on the Black Sea. They have Odessa, and then they have the port in Crimea. See, this is very important. I don't think many people think about this. Trade routes, right? Well, sure. Certainly, going through the Black Sea is a, is a trade route. Any port is a tremendous benefit economically and militarily to the country. And so Russia could not lose both right, ports. Right, sorry, I forgot. Military strategy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they couldn't lose both ports. There's no way. So Khrushchev makes Crimea part of the Ukraine. And then when Perestroika comes with uh, Gorbachev, um, he lets these separate countries be autonomous. Well, and the word autonomous is, con is confusing to us in the West as compared to the way they think of it in Russia. And I'll talk about that if you want. But <clears throat> the thing about it is, is that when... 
Crimea, when Ukraine broke away from Russia during perestroika, of course took Crimea with it because it was a de facto part of it at the time. And uh, that was okay uh, with Russia uh, at the time, and it was fine, but um, when Obama interfered in the Ukraine and interfered with their election, got rid of... They, what happened was there was a leader in the Ukraine who was pro-Russia. And part of the reason that they need to be, or they need to pay attention to, their relationship with Russia is because Russia provides all of their oil. They can't do without Russia. And they were in tremendous debt to Russia because they're an economic basket case. The Ukraine... Uh, Ukrainian dollar was changed, and I don't know if they call it a dollar, but whatever their currency is, was trading with the U.S. 20 to 1. And when I was there just a couple of years ago, it was down to, to 7 to 1. So what you're, what you're talking about is, um, um, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Okay, you would get 20 Ukrainian dollars for, um, 7 Ukrainian dollars for an American dollar before. Now it's 20 to 1. So I said it backwards. But the result is, is that the money's worth about a third of what it was worth before. And everything in the country is just too expensive for everybody. And, uh, and so they're, they're an economic basket case. And, right, they owe, yeah. and they owe Russia a lot of money. And so uh, the guy that was the head of the Ukraine before Obama started monkeying with the place was completely corrupt, terrible. Obama was right about that. He was not good. And he was pro-Russia. And Obama was trying to get the Ukraine to come into the EU and to, the, and to sort of change sides. And that, of course, alerted Russia because Russia can't lose both of its ports on the Black Sea. So anyway, so Obama interferes with their election and they get a new guy in. And this guy is supposedly uh, a chocolate baron, but he's a billionaire. And uh, he's corrupt too. He's just as bad, maybe worse, than the guy that was in there before. But he's pro-West. And so the Obama administration and now all the stupid politicians in the United States who don't understand what's going on are upset about uh, the fact that... Um, <clears throat> The people in eastern Ukraine don't want to be part of, they don't want to leave Russia. They are Russians. They consider themselves Russian. Uh, one of the things that the new guy did was he come in, came in and he said, everything's going to have to be in Ukrainian now. And a lot of those people don't speak Ukrainian. And, you know, learning Ukrainian is not like learning Spanish. Yeah. Ukraine is like one of the hardest languages in the world to speak. And they don't want to learn it. And, and they, you know, so they want to have some autonomy. Yeah, they want to have autonomy, yeah. right? And 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 this story that you're 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 telling here, this this only happened a few years back. I remember right. this. Yeah. And this is just one of the cases that we know of recently of the United States meddling in foreign affairs, foreign elections and foreign governments and foreign affairs. We know about this. It's not a secret. You can you can find this stuff out, you know. I had John Perkins, the guy who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman on this show a while back. He laid out the whole deal in that book and explained how how things go down and in strategic alliances, military advantage, 
exchange of re- easy access to resources, you know, these things. Very important. This is what foreign affairs are about. And a lot of times they get disguised as, well, we got to help the people here because there's this terrible person and we need to save these people. But really, it's all about this kind of stuff. And, you know, now we're hearing this about the United States, you know? Someone's meddling in our elections, maybe our own government. Yeah, maybe, we got a lot of nerve you know I mean? complaining we about that. We have a that. lot of nerve complaining about that, right? Yeah, really. Because we've been doing it for a long, long time. We do it all the time. Yeah. We do it all the time. Um, you know, we, we the, the CIA uh, killed uh, Allende in Chile. In Chile, yeah. And then put in Pinochet, who turned in, we supported Pinochet, who killed thousands of people. He was, a, he was an unbelievable fascist dictator. Look. You won't learn about that in eighth grade social studies, though. No. No, no, no. And, you know, we back people who basically support our corporations, just like they said in The Economic Hitman, which incidentally is a must read. Everybody ought to read that book to get an idea what's going on. And then it make you wonder whether or not uh, the same people who killed the foreign uh, leaders in small plane crashes killed Russell Long and killed Carnahan and killed Wellstone. Maybe so. All the Democratic senators seem, you know, over years, a long time in between, certainly. But it makes you wonder if that's one of their methods of killing people. Is to, and what about uh, Kennedy's uh, son died in a small plane? Right. Right. You know, and yeah, I, I, I watched this documentary, a fantastic documentary by Errol Morris, um, actually father of Hamilton Morris, Hamilton's pharmacopoeia. Errol Morris made this documentary called Wormwood. Highly recommend watching it. It's yeah. a docudrama done really well. And it goes into these, uh, the CIA experimenting with LSD in the, I think, 50s or early 60s. Um, one of the scientists that was contracted to work with them fell out of a window in New York. Well, it turns out, spoiler alert, the CIA had documentation in the event of a scientist going rogue or, or somebody, anyone part of the organization, starting to question things, think for themselves. One of the metho- methods was make it look like an accident, falling out of a window, something like that. It's printed in the documents and they show it in the movie. You know, and it turns out there's a twist at the end of really that this was all a cover for chemical weapons attacks that they were testing in the Korean War. Yeah, well, actually, I knew someone here in Boulder. My, one of, my son uh, wrestled, and when he was a little kid, I was a coach of the kids' wrestling program. And one of the kids that was in the program, his father had been connected to that uh, program where they were giving... Um, yeah, MK uh, Ultra. Uh, I don't know what it was, but uh, according to his wife, it changed him dramatically. Uh, and the man passed away now, but uh, he was in the uh, he was in that program. Yeah, and it moved him around a bit. Anyway, what I was saying about the Ukraine is that um, when the Eastern the people that were living in Eastern Ukraine that were Russians. Um, wanted autonomy. We think autonomy in the West, we think of autonomy as breaking away and making another country, but that's not the way Russians think about autonomy. The Russians have three kinds of states. They have cries, they have um, republics, and they have oblices. So we have, you know, all of our states are the same kind of government setup, but that's not the way it is in Russia. 
And so the, the republics have almost complete autonomy, and they only have to pay taxes to the central government, and the men have to be in the Russian army, but they don't get, they get to decide who's their governor is, their mayor is, you know, the laws that they have in their daily life is much controlled by the government of the republic. And then you have oblices, which are on the exact opposite side, and they are, think of obligatory, the, um, they have to do everything the Russians say, and so they have no autonomy. So there's autonomy that's um, a country inside of Russia, but they have autonomy. That's what the Eastern Ukrainians were thinking about when they said they wanted autonomy. They didn't, for instance, want to have their government in Ukraine, in the language of Ukraine. They wanted to keep it Russian. They didn't want Ukrainian in their schools. They, um, they also, uh, they had other things that they wanted to control and, and they'd been doing it for a long time and they didn't want to change. And this government that we were backing were actually throwing bombs into Eastern Ukraine at people who were rioting and, and doing the things that they did to, uh, protest the changes that were suggested by the new government. Right, yeah. And th th this kind of stuff has been going on for a long time. And, you know, ever since meeting you and, and hanging out with you and talking with you, it seems like you really know a lot about history and, you know, global politics, uh, cultures from different different places. You have a really good grasp of, the, of this stuff, not to mention all the experience you've had as, as, a, as a lawyer, as a trial lawyer in New Orleans, working you know, murder cases and all these things. Now as an author with, with your new book, Disorder. And it's just, uh, it's amazing. Do you think that, how did, this kind, how did all of these things happen for you? This sort of, you know, building yourself to be up, this, this kind of person, like you traveled to, what, over 112 countries? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just curious because you're just, you're a really interesting guy and you, you just seem to know a lot about a lot of things and uh, have some, like I said, great stories and stuff. So, I mean, did this happen like as you were traveling? Did you, did you always, were you always interested in learning about the world and, and learning about other cultures and going different places and having different experiences? Well, I, I had a kind of an emotional thing that happened in my life when I was in the DA's office, which caused me to say, I'm going to leave for a while. I'm going to go take a look at the rest of the world. But um, after you start traveling, everybody's eyes open. If you travel, your eyes are going to open. You're going to see things that are different from what you thought were going to be there when you got there. And if you pay attention, you're going to learn a lot about the other culture, the way other people think. And it can't help but open your mind. And once your mind starts to open, and once you're able to see uh, more clearly, it's like walking through a tunnel and suddenly coming out on the other end and seeing that there's a world, a much bigger world out there, and nothing is going to encourage you to go back into the tunnel. Right, it's like uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, right? Like uh, yeah. the, the, the people that live in the cave, and then there's a, a man that ventures be out of the cave, and he's like, this, this world that we're living in here is, is nothing. There's a whole world out here, but they don't believe them. They're angry, they're hostile, they're afraid to venture out beyond the cave. Well, you know, the truth is I was not familiar with that story, but that is exactly what I'm trying to say. Exactly. And so I, I'll tell you a story that happened to me. It's, uh, it sort of got me to recognize who I was. I was uh, 
in Peshawar. Peshawar. Peshawar, yeah. Where's that? Peshawar is on the eastern border of Pakistan uh, with the border of Afghanistan. And it's right at the entrance to the Khyber Pass. And the Khyber Pass is where you pass through to get to Kabul from Pakistan. And I was on my way um, in that direction, west, uh, crossing Asia. And I got to Peshawar and um, the, uh, <clears throat> the little, I was on what they call the Hippie Trail. And the Hippie Trail w existed in the 70s, 1970s. And uh, you can look it up on the internet. But what, what it was is it was a, uh, a line across Asia from India to Istanbul. And it crossed through those countries, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey. And um, so people would be traveling, hippies were traveling back and forth, and some of them were going east, and some of them were going west, and whenever you got to a particular place, uh, you wanted to talk to the people who were coming in the other direction, so that you could find out where did they stay, where did they eat, where could you eat and not get sick, where could you stay and not get robbed, where could you stay and didn't right, have yeah. bed bugs, and all those things, you know, and so we exchanged information very freely at that time, you know, it was, it was a time of free love, and easy to make friends with people that are strangers who are of the same uh, mental uh, uh, attitude toward life. It's like the early 70s? It was the 70s, yeah. yes. It was the 70s. I went there in uh, 1975. Okay. Around then, yeah. And so I guess I was involved. I went maybe in, through the last few years of it, except that I, only, I didn't go for years. I just went for a few months, but it was the last few years of the of the existence of the hippie trail. How do you think that got opened up? Because I remember reading about uh, Ram Dass, who was Richard Alpert at Harvard, yeah. uh, after getting fired and you know Timothy Leary going and doing his thing. He went to India to go seek out a guru. You know, He met one, Ma Maharaji, his guru. And I think that was in the mid-60s, I want to say, something like that. Um, and... You know, then there was a, he tells the story about, you know, he went there and then he came home and he wrote Be Here Now and he introduced people to, you know, meditation in the East and, and, and the concept of gurus and this whole thing. I mean, he was, wasn't the first one to do that. I know Alan Watts kind of brought Zen over other people. Houston Smith, I believe, was involved in kind of bringing Eastern studies to the West. But then in the 60s, Ramdas kind of opened that up again, and you started to see a lot of people going to India after that. So in between, like, I don't know when he first went, maybe 63 or something like that, in between 63 and 75, you definitely had a lot of people going over there, right? A lot of people seeking spirituality, trying to find out who they were, people experimenting with LSD and other drugs at, back at home maybe thinking there's something more, let's go head to the East, let's read Be Here Now, check out India. You think that's how that got started? A lot of people going over there and then the hippies kind of going on this trail and creating a, th a thing there? I can't say any, I can't say that I saw anything to indicate that that isn't exactly what happened, but there is another thing that was happening at the same time, and that was we had the Vietnam War. And, right. and so there were a lot of Vietnam vets who were disabled in some way or other. Maybe it was PTSD, probably was PTSD for most of them or all of them. Right. I, they didn't really call it that back then, right? I, you know, like, 
I can't say. Be- I know George Carlin has a joke about this where he says, we used to call it shell-shocked in yeah. World War II. And he's like, now we call it, you know, all these other names. And he goes on this whole thing. But yeah, that was big. I mean, the Vietnam, you know, the Vietnam invasion, occupation and murder, as I like to, you know, say it, not war. War is when there's two armies fighting each other, you know. Well, I mean, there, was, was, there was a pretty substantial army fighting us. Sure. The Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese were tough. Real tough. Right, right. You know, they had pushed, they had decimated the French. And we were stupid enough to take over after the French left. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just like what's going on in Afghanistan now. There was no way to win that war. Right. In fact, they interviewed... And it was started on a lie, too. Yeah, yeah. It was started on a lie, absolutely. It was started on what they called the... the, uh, It was the uh, domino theory. The idea that uh, if we let Vietnam fall to communism, that it was going to sweep across Cambodia and Laos and, and Thailand and, you know, just move all the way over... Burma, the whole thing. And so they said, well, they're going to stop it at the very first domino. And so it was stupid. It was really stupid. In fact, um, if you remember, Jackson Brown sure. uh, uh, wrote a song. Um, I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. With the blood in the ink of the headlines And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war And there's a shadow on the faces Of the men who sent the To the wars that are fought in places Where their business interest runs On the radio talk shows and the TV You hear one thing again and again How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own For the people who finally can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone And there are lights in the balance Our wars. I want to know who the men in the shadows are 
time to be alive because there was a lot of like anti-war protests, anti-war music. You know, you had people kind of trying out alternative versions of living in communes and things like that, seeking gurus, all this stuff going on. And it seems like now we're just like worn out. I remember when 9-11 happened, after that happened, there was a good air of like, let's all come together and, you know, um, do something. And then eventually it was like, wait, what the fuck are we doing? This is all bullshit. And when people realized that they got angry and there was protests and there was people were really, you know, Occupy Wall Street and, you know, against the wars. And I just, I don't see that anymore. Well, there's a reason. Yeah. There's a real reason. And the reason is, is that we used to get drafted. And so they took thousands of young men who did not want to go and made them go to Southeast Asia. And when they came back and reported to their friends what it was going on there, then we had an awareness that we don't have now because we have a volunteer army now, and it's a different, it's a different deal. You know, they don't come back and, and tell on everybody, although certainly it's true that uh, some of them, most of them, many of them, all of them maybe, with PTSD or some version of it. It might be very bad for some and not so bad for others, but they've all been changed by seeing people's guts blown out and stuff like that. And uh, they are committing suicide in record numbers. Yeah, I think it's like 22 veterans a day commit suicide. I think I saw another statistic that said more veterans have committed suicide than have been killed in duty in the war in, in Iraq. And uh, that's, that's an interesting distinction because I would say that the duty was, is still killing them. Sure. You know, yeah, it's just in a different way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really sad. I think so, you do a good job of talking about this in the book, you know, in, in disorder, like presenting, you know, this situation that has come about because yeah, we don't have a draft anymore, but we have a lot of situations that kind of squeeze people into making decisions that maybe they don't really want to be making absolutely absolutely in fact that's that was the impetus of the book i was i was taking a trip across russia uh i started in vladivostok i was taking the trans-siberian it's something that i wanted to do i wanted to see people told me it was going to be dangerous in russia the russian people were very friendly it was like visiting a very friendly part of the united states that i hadn't been to it was I mean, of course, they spoke Russian, and there were things that I learned and saw in different culture and stuff, but they were very, very friendly people. Anyway, I'm crossing Russia on this train, and sometimes it's, uh, 
more than two days between the places that we stopped. You know, the, the train might have stopped in very, very small towns, but between the places that I was going to get off, it took me seven weeks to cross. And while I was there doing that, I, it hit me that, you know, what's going on in the United States with the student loan system is criminal. It's a good old boy system that allows, you know, very wealthy people, banks and insurance companies and stuff to make a fortune off of these kids, turn them into indentured servants. And the consequences for our society is brutal. What made you think of the student loan situation? Was that kind of on your mind already? Well, I think I read an article about young women prostituting themselves uh, in order to pay for college. And then I started thinking about it. And, you know, once you start thinking in a particular direction, you have a tendency to see tidbits of things that, that are sticking out of other books right. and stuff. Right, yeah, and, start connecting the dots. And you start connecting the dots. Yeah. And, I, and, and I realized, you know, because I had lived through the Vietnam War, um, that a lot of young men go into the military nowadays. They didn't do it then because of the draft, but and because of the war, and because so many people were getting killed and maimed and stuff. But nowadays, young men have the expectation that they can go into the military, survive it, and not get maimed and killed, because although there's a lot of them that are, that's happening to, there's also a lot that don't get, have to go and don't do this, or go and don't get hurt. And uh, they do it to um, pay for college, because the student loan system is such an onerous, horrible thing. I mean, when you think about it, okay, if I said, Mike, you and I are friends, we met in the jungle, we, we know each other, you know, we've had heart-to-heart -heart talks, we've had talks in front of other people, we've spilled our guts, we know each other, loan me $10,000. And you said, fine, I'll be glad to loan it to you, but I'd like to have some collateral. I said, oh, no, Mike, we're friends. You don't need any collateral, I'm going to pay you back. Well, the truth is, if you don't have any collateral, you should pay a high interest rate. That's the way it works, okay? If I give you a mortgage on my house, the interest rate should be lower because you have a collateral. Maybe if I don't pay it, you can sell my house and you can get paid back, okay? But there's always a possibility, even with a mortgage, that I, don't, I get such financial trouble, I don't fix the roof, I don't do this, I don't do that, the house deteriorates, and now it's worth less than I owe you, and so you don't really have as good a collateral with a house. But then compare that, for instance, to a loan that's guaranteed by the government. You're not going to lose your money, for sure. Okay, so we got student loans that are guaranteed by the government. Yeah, it's a, it's a no-lose situation. Exactly, a no-lose yeah. situation. And what happens? The interest rates that they charge are greater than the, you can buy, get a mortgage. I just put a mortgage on a house at 4%. The student loans start at uh, 5.9. They start at 6%. They go up to 11.9%. So they are raping the students, and they don't have any risk. Yeah, it and is, the interest, too, on them. That's what I'm talking yeah, about. The, it, that it, also, if you say you like make you know, defer payments, you get out of college, because this is what happened to me. Like I got out of college. I couldn't pay because I couldn't get a job. I graduated right, right in the, the Great Recession, you know, when the banks failed and all that stuff. That's exactly when I graduated college. And... The jobs just weren't there for me. So I had to take some lower jobs. I couldn't afford to make student loan payments. So they do this thing where you can defer, you can put it off, but there's like a double interest penalty that builds up. When oh, you do that. well, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, because it's interest on interest. Yeah. You know, it's growing, it's growing faster and faster. So, yeah, um, but that's not, 
an accident. They know that that kind of stuff is going to happen to a certain percentage of the people that they loan the money to. And even the people that they loan the money to who that doesn't happen to, it's still a giant obligation. And the obligation, because it's so onerous, that's why young people go into prostitution and that's why young men join the army. And the consequences of the student loan system actually permeate all of our society from the fact that if you graduated from college and you don't have wealthy parents, the probability is you're not going to be able to get a loan to buy a house. So young people are having to delay home ownership, which makes a big difference because um, if when they finally do get their loan paid, and 10% of them, incidentally, will never get it paid. We know that now. Right. They're yeah. gonna they be, have to delay starting a family. They're going to be yeah. in debt... For, for the rest of their lives. 10% are going to be for the rest of their lives. The ones that, And it never goes away. And it never goes away. But for the ones that do get to finally pay it off, it's, they're much older. So they're much older when they finally are able to buy a house. And a lot of them are saying the same thing about um, having children. They're delaying having children. Now look at this, what happens to our society when that happens. Okay? And I'm not saying that only wealthy kids or only middle-class kids should go to college, although middle-class kids have a hell of a time paying for college in our system now. Well, yeah, and that's a whole other issue, that's why college issue. is so expensive in the first place, right? Well, like, I've heard a lot of people t- you know, talk about how you used to be able to go to college, work a summer job, and pay you know, whatever it is, two grand a year. You know, now college costs like 20 grand a semester. And you can't, you can't work that off. So you're forced to take these loans, you know? And you go, you know, everything about the college, you go to the bookstore, the books are $300 a pop, they change the textbooks every year, so people have to keep buying new books. I think the, the disconnection here is that our, it hits our emotions when we talk about education because we're like, everyone should have a right to be educated, everyone should have a right to go to college. It's this emotional thing. It's, it's easy to kind of pull on our heartstrings. But really, when we're looking at it, it's a fucking business, well, and, and it's it, booming. Well, the business behind the business is the student loans. Right. And, and so what's going on is that the legislatures are cutting funding for public universities. So when they cut the funding for the public universities, the universities, they can't just not have the money. They've got to get the money. So they increase their uh, tuition. They put... Um, special costs like for instance lab fees if you take biology and and then they've got the book fiasco that you just mentioned and then and so all these things raise the cost of college for the students well what does that do to the people who are loaning the money okay and if you add on if suppose i borrow twenty thousand dollars from you because i can't afford to go to college it's twenty thousand dollars if the college raises the tuition to 40000 I have to borrow the whole forty. okay? Well, that means that a greater percent, for the same payment, I've got a, a much bigger, bigger loan, right? And so that loan's going to take a lot longer to pay, a lot longer, not just twice as long. If it goes from 20000 to 40000 it's not just twice as long because that other part is sitting up there gaining interest, I mean, all these years, and you're paying interest on that interest. Just think of it as two two loans. Think of it a twenty thousand dollar loan that you're making payments on, and another twenty thousand dollar loan over here that you're not making payments on. Okay, 
So that's really what's happened. You've put another. Right, yeah. And so this other $20,000 loan that you're not paying, what happens to a $20,000 loan in 15 years if you never make a payment on it? Becomes a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's right. Or maybe more. Probably more. I think it doubles. I think by the there's a rule. I think it doubles every eight or nine years. Yeah, it's a it's a tremendous trap. And like you said, it is. It's like this indentured servitude. We're saddled with this impossible debt, you know, that that crushes you. And you know, you mentioned before about how people have to turn to prostitution or the army, the military. There's, but there's other decisions too that aren't as quite as extreme, but it, it, it impact people's lives. Like we were talking about this yesterday, you might have to do take a job that you really hate and that you don't want to do, and that it really makes you miserable. But you got those loans to pay back, so you're stuck between a, a rock and a hard place. Now you're working a job you hate. You're arguing with your your wife and your kids. Your home life is is shit. You know, you get stress, anxiety. You're depressed. Now you have to take medication. You're going to the pharmaceutical industry thing. I mean, this whole, it's a spider web. It makes a sick society. It's a toxic society, a sick society. That's right. right. But what it is doing is it's turning all these young people into indentured servants. And let me give you another little thing that happens to people, okay? Suppose you're on this treadmill and you're paying for your student loan and you're just making it, and you're paying your mortgage, and you're paying your car note, and you're paying your insurance, and you're paying for food, and you're paying maybe every once in a while you can take your wife out to dinner or something like that. And then one day your boss says to you, you know what, Mike, I'd like you to start coming in at 7 in the morning. You can't tell him no. you got to come in on Saturday, Mike. We're gonna, you know, We decided that we're going to have a special thing every fourth week and everybody's going to work on Saturday and I need you to come to that. You can't tell him no, because if you miss a couple of months of payments, you're another couple of years or maybe a year behind because you didn't make those payments with your loan. So you are now shackled another year for telling the boss that you're not going to come in on a Saturday. Right. Yeah. I've been in that position before because I've worked with a lot of startup companies. And when you're working with a startup company, it's all hands on deck. You know, you're wearing multiple hats and it it has to have kind of a cultish mentality. You kind of have to drink the Kool-Aid and be a part of the team if you're going to make this thing, you know, take off. And so you can't really, you say no, you can't. And, you know, even sales jobs where you work on commission, it's like, well, don't you want to earn that extra money? You can't, you can't say no to that. And, you know, we were talking about this yesterday. I think this is a great connection to make. You're working all these hours, you know, you're overworked. What I mentioned before, you have, maybe you have trouble at home because you're not around with the kids as much. You know, you're, you're stressed, you're depressed. You're not really doing the thing that you want to do, but you have to do it because you got to make these loan payments. So you're on medications and all these things. And then on top of that, (laughs) you don't have the time, like what you said yesterday, you don't have the time to learn about what's happening in the world because it takes time to understand it at the depth that's necessary to have a good hold of what's going on so that you can make good decisions, vote for the right people, you know, have an awareness of what's happening, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the more time that they take away from you, the more time that you're worried, the more time that you have these other responsibilities, the less time you can spend taking a look at things that you, you know you don't have any control over. So if you're going to cut anything, cut that. Okay, so what happens is they decide that they're on a team. It's just like a stockbroker. If you get a if you get a stockbroker and you say, okay, I've got uh, let's say I'm one of the lucky ones and I've got enough money to make investments, 
But I don't feel like learning the stock market the way you need to learn it to do it right. So I get what I consider somebody I trust to be my stockbroker. And he he buys the stock and sells the stock. Yeah, a lot of people do that. And hopefully he's not going to mill it and make 20 sales and purchases every month so that he can get a nice check. But anyway, if you if you get a guy that you trust, that's what you do. You trust him. And so somebody says to you, well, do you have stock XYZ stock? And you say, I don't know. I got a broker, you know? Well, that we, uh, people do exactly the same thing with politics. What they do is they say, okay, I don't have, they don't, they don't, they don't say it as logically as I'm just going to do, but what they, de facto, what they do is they don't take the time to learn all the different details. They just find a guy or a party that they believe in. Okay, and they decide that they're going to let that group make their decisions. And so a lot of people say, "Okay, the Republicans are for this. I'm for it. The Republicans are against this. I'm against it. The Democrats are for this. I'm for it. And so they decide whether they're a red or a blue and whatever the reds say, that's what they're going to do. Or whatever the blues say, that's what they're going to do. And so they don't find out about what's really going on. And it turns out, I think, reasonably that if you look at all the different issues, you're not going to always be with either team. In fact, you may even have an idea that neither of them have. Oh, no. You mean like an idea for your, of, of, your, of your own? Oh, God. How you you that might happen? start thinking for yourself. Oh, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That would be dangerous. Yeah, that would be quo. really dangerous if we allowed people to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, we can't have that. We can't have that. Yeah, go back to watching Kardashians. Oh, well, any, yeah, exactly. Go back to watching the Kardashians or go back to you know, arguing about the Super Bowl or whatever it is that, you know, they want us to talk about who goes in what bathroom while they're stealing our money when they're passing a tax bill that's so great for the corporations and so great for the half of 1% and it's killing the middle class. And at the same time, they don't mind telling you that they've done something great for the middle class. Wait till the middle class get their tax returns this year. Yeah, I, I always wonder like what it takes to open somebody up, you know, to kind of, I guess a lot of people say to wake up to this kind of thing or, you know, to, to sort of invade somebody's reality tunnel with a with a fresh perspective or a new idea to get them to look and say, oh, I wonder what's going on that's like causing all of these problems that we have. And, you know, I think that, I think this, this is, you know, a good example of like there not being time to do these things, you know, and then you, you right, and so yeah, you so you delegate you that responsibility to something else. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same thing about education, except that I think education is one of those non-delegable duties. You can't just say I'm going to send my kid to school and I'm going to depend on the teacher to teach the kid everything that it needs to know. You're the father, you're the mother. You've you've got a responsibility to make sure that child's ready to go out into the world and take care of itself and do a and and do a good job, maybe even have a meaningful life. And you can't depend on other people to do that for you. And I mean just because you decide, well, you know, this school's not really getting it. I'm going to change schools. That's not the attitude. The attitude, yeah, you should do that too, but it's your responsibility to teach your children. It's your ch- responsibility to get there. And it's non-delegable. It's a duty that you have to do. Right. Now, the question is, is paying attention to politics and making sure that the right people are running the government, the government's making the right decision, is that a non-delegable duty too? Is that a duty that we all have in a society, a free society, a democracy, that we make sure that this giant ship that we're on that is not easily turned 
just like a giant ocean vessel, uh, is going in the right direction. You know, and we've got it. And is that is that a non-delegable duty? Well, for most people, they don't feel that way. For most people, they just go, "Okay, I'm just going to be a red, or I'm going to be a blue." It's just easier, yeah. And you know, it, it, that's the way it should be, right? I mean, we should have a say in where the the ship goes, and that comes out of this ability to to freely think for yourself, to ask questions, to have uh, polite and courteous discourse intelligent discourse and dialogue to exchange ideas, to, to use language, to try and fit pieces of the puzzle together with other pieces of the puzzle that people have out there. And we're seeing a, you know, an attack on that. And it seems, it seems like in the last five years, six years, I don't know how long this has been going on, but it's like, we're fighting and arguing with each other, trying to police people from saying bad words or whatever. Meanwhile, we should really be uniting together to kind of focus on the real criminals that are getting away with murder, you know, literally. Um, but yeah, it's, it seems like to me that it's like we got this thing on autopilot. The powers that be don't want the people to be making decisions like that and figuring right. things out. And I think that another level of that goes back to the student loan system. And that is that they're keeping people from getting a college education. People who say to themselves, I'm not putting my head in that trap. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm going to owe 150 or 200 or, or $75,000 that I can't pay back and be shackled uh, for the rest of my life. And so what do they do? They have to decide that they're not going to college. Now, certainly there's some alternatives, junior colleges and stuff like that. We don't really have a good mainstream setup of this, of this kind of alternative program as we should. You know? No, we certainly don't. And we don't have trade schools, which we ought to have. Pr apprenticeships, know? right? Apprenticeships. Like learning, right. hands-on experience, exactly. these sorts of things. So if they're limiting the people who can go to college, then they're limiting the number of people who are educated, and then they're limiting the number of people who would challenge them in their decisions and stuff. And oh, feel, man. Feel so you see, it's, it's, it's a, mm. a three-tiered or four-tiered thing. It's yeah, not just... Yeah, the intellectual herd. Well, it's... it's yes, that's right. It's, it's, it's making the, the um, average educational level decline. And, and so that, of course, makes it easier to herd animals that don't have the equipment or the background to understand. Right. And, it was, and, and getting back to the background that you don't understand, let's get back to travel, because that's part of the reason and part of the way people, their eyes open up. And, right. and that's one of the things that we do less than any of the other first world countries. If you took the number of people in Germany who have traveled outside of Germany, of course, it's true that their countries are closer together, but even people have gone to Asia and gone to other places and gone to the United States, gone to um, Australia and places like that. The percentage in Europe is much, much higher than it is in the United States. We have a lot of people who have never left the United States. We have a lot of people who have never left the state they live in. We've got people who have never left the city that they were born in. I mean, that's true in India, but it's not, it's not true in first world countries and other places. Sure. When I was traveling, I met tons of people from all over the place, from the UK, France, rare, hardly met very much Americans. There's more people traveling now, though, I will say. But that is another kind of like tactic of the, of the establishment is to kind of keep people there buying their bullshit. Don't go see the world for yourself because that's another mode of thinking for yourself. Well, think about this. You come out of college, 
and you've got this giant debt. You know, you can't go traveling. You got to right. go to work. Right. Okay. That's why a lot of those kids from other countries go. They take gap years. Sure, they do, but they, they don't. Go. They're not stuck with it because, right. I mean, Sri Lanka has free education. Russia has free education. In the EU, you can go to any of the colleges in the EU if you're an EU member for the, whatever the tuition is for the for the, the people that live there. And it's small, and 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 it's free. They have free education everywhere. Yeah, we like to think we you know the. The propaganda that we get here in the United States is that we're the best country in the world. We're the freest country in the world, you know, and there's this, this bullshit, you know, live the American dream, buy a house, get a college education, have a family and you'll be able to do okay. That's gone. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so, you know, we, we talk about this, this government that we should be participating in yet we get our tax money taken out our tax dollars, 40% of your, if you're, income that you're earning is taken out and it's spent on what it's spent on a lot of, of evil shit things that we wouldn't voluntarily choose to spend our money on and then we look at the situations that are going on and it's like oh we don't have money to send our people to school to get them educated in a proper way and you know i think changing the education system is crucial in that too but it's like oh no but we have 787 billion dollars to spend on defense, you know, for the military, we can spend money on all this kind of shit, but we can't spend money on taking care of our people. Right. And this is a, this is a big problem too. It's absolutely ridiculous. I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, the idea of, um, keeping these kids from going to college or putting them in a situation where they're indentured for the rest of their lives, it basically, uh, you're, you're, you're stealing their lives, but it also affects the country in a much more important way. Well, not more important, but certainly in an economic way. Okay. And that is that, um, we can't outwork Korea. We can't outwork India. We can't outwork, uh, the countries that have these giant, uh, uh, China, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, those places. You know, you go over there and you got thousands of people who work for 50 cents a day or whatever. You, we can't do that. We can't outwork them. The American worker can't do that. And it's not fair to expect that the American worker is going to work for a very small amount of money and not get, like you say, the American dream. And so um, since we can't outwork these other countries, how do we stay economically on an even keel or even above the way we have for many years? I mean, we have the highest standard of living in the world. Um, there are other countries that are now like us, but nobody's got a better deal than we do. And um, how do we keep that? And the answer to that is what we have done to be a very powerful economy without the millions of workers is innovation. And that innovation, it's required that we have education in order to innovate. You know, Rollo May, many years ago, wrote a book about... Uh, getting things done. I forget the name of it right now, but I'll, uh, but basically what he said was you can't just go take a walk in the woods and have a great idea. Now, of course, we all think that that is what happens. We take a walk in the woods and we have a great idea. But what Rollo May said was you have to first thoroughly understand the problem. 
You have to read all the material. You have to be educated. You have to understand what's not possible before you can think of something that might work. And so you have to get that education behind you before you can have the innovation. If you, you know, as a trial lawyer, for instance, I read everything that's in the file. I read all of the depositions. I prepare as much as I can with my experts. I learn about the problem as much as I can. Then I take a walk in the woods. Then I go sit on top of the mountain. Then I go hole up someplace and allow my thoughts to just flow whatever direction they go. Because now I understand enough about the problem. If I come up with a solution, it's likely to work. Okay. Right, yeah. That's the idea. And so if we shackle our children into being less than educated as much as they're capable, then we are denying our country of the innovation that they may come up with. And it could come from any direction. It could come from a kid out of the ghetto. It can, I mean, look at, do you remember that uh, there's this movie now, um, The Kid Who Shackled the Wind? Do you know about that? Haven't seen it, no. No, okay. So it's about a little kid in Africa who figured out how to make windmills create the power to uh, um, uh, push the water further away, collect the, create the electrical power to push the water far enough away to irrigate enough land to save his, his, his community from dying of hunger, okay? And eventually, he was brought to the United States. He graduated from Dartmouth. He's a scientist. He's, okay, that kind of stuff. It, I'm, so uh, those kind of ideas and things can come from anywhere, all right? And to the extent that people understand the problems in the world around them, they're more likely to come up with a solution, like I said, that works. Yeah. So we need to educate our children. So we need to spend, instead of spending 700, like you said, and $80 billion, like Trump suggests, for the military, or even $50 billion, or even $20 billion. I mean, we outspend everybody we do. on yeah. military. It's ridiculous. We outspend every nation with a military combined by over, like, 10 times. And incidentally, you know who the second most, uh, spends the most? China? Most? That's a good guess, but it's wrong. Russia. Wrong. Who do you, who do you got? S Saudi Arabia. Right. I knew they were up there. I didn't know they were number two. Yeah, they spend a They're an interesting in, yeah, group that's, over that's, there. That's, uh, incidentally, there is a PBS special about what's going on inside of Saudi Arabia. Some people risk their lives to videotape some of that stuff. Right. I mean, they're hanging people in the streets. They're, they're telling people what they can do and what they can't do in a very, very heavy-handed way yeah. uh, with that uh, Wahhabi uh, Islam. Right, Wahhabism, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the United States has uh, very friendly relationships with them, uh, interestingly. We pretend like we, um, um, we have an altruistic attitude toward other countries and that we want what's best for the people and all that stuff, but that's not Doing. Of course not. I mean, yeah. that's that's what exactly what the economic hitman is about. Is right. It talks about the the fact that we really are we're in it for the money. And of we're, course, and yeah. We're in it for the power. Right. 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 But uh, anyway, so the the idea of not paying for education is more expensive than paying for the education. It's costing us an innovation. It's co it's 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 taking away, like you said, the American dream from a whole generation of Americans. Oh yeah. It's horrible. It, it, it's not something that shouldn't happen. And behind all of it is the student loan system, 
Okay, it's the way that they're actually able to milk these kids out of their lives yeah. and take that money and do something else with it. Give it to them, buy an extra yacht, buy an extra house in Belize or whatever it is that you want to do. And and so the student loan system is the reason why I wrote my book. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, on top of that, you have it's just this like you, you mentioned before this kind of dumbing down of the culture. And there's a, a great book by this author, John Taylor Gatto, called Dumbing Us Down. And, uh, you know, it starts, it starts at, uh, at the home, but it also, and then it seeps into education and it's like, you know, we have this dumbing down and then what we get is, you know, we get the policies and we get the administrations that we don't like into, into doing these things that we don't want. And it's like, you know, no one's really aware. And then the, the civil discourse breaks down. We can't even intelligently discuss things with other people. But I, I you know, this, we can talk about this for days on end right. we started talking about how you got opened up to to all this and learning about the world and and all your experiences you know you brought up something that happened to you when you were uh assistant da i think when you were working or you had an experience and, and then that set you off to travel you were in afghanistan you were on the hippie trail i think we should circle back to that you know we, we were okay so we were... let's go back to the hippie trail so i'm i'm on the hippie trail and I've gotten myself to Peshawar, okay? I've already been to Delhi and to Jaipur and to Udapur and to Amritsar and then worked my way through Pakistan all the way over now. I'm on the, on the western border of Pakistan with Afghanistan and a little, little youth hostel type place that I've been recommended on the hippie trail by some other traveler going in the other direction. And I'm there and I want to catch the bus from Peshawar to Kabul. And I find out that it's completely booked up for the next four days. And I'm stuck, okay? And Pesha it's, it's Ramadan of all things, okay? Ramadan is on, isn't during the all this, always at the same time of the year. It moves around a bit because they're on a different calendar. But when I was there in August of 1978, uh, Ramadan was there. And uh, Ramadan is a very bad time to be visiting Muslim countries because people can't eat if they follow the rules, they can't eat during the day. And so they're used to eating during the day, and they're hungry. And a lot of people get angry when they're hungry. It's just part of their, you know, I guess the hunter-gatherer or the hunter stuff. I'm hungry. i got to find something in the jungle, and I'm willing to kill it and eat it, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so these, it's not a good time to be in a Muslim country. And so I go and I get myself ensconced in this um, uh youth hostel type place and it is in a big building that um was not intended originally for kids to spend the night there and um the door is just a big persian carpet heavy persian carpet over the front of a of a um, entrance to a building that's maybe 20 feet wide and 25 feet tall and well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it was big. It was a big, tall. Maybe it wasn't that tall because the carpet covered up the front of it. But anyway, the carpet came down or like a drape, and then you went behind it, and it was thick, and it could keep the air on the inside in, and it was air-conditioned inside. And they had uh, a cooler there that had soft drinks, which was great because it was 100-and-something degrees outside. It was Just think of outside of being like in a desert. It was right. It was dry, and it was dusty, and it was... The sun was so bright that when you when you ducked out 
from inside the youth hostel, you were momentarily blinded. And for me, even made my eyes tear up. It was just that strong of light. So you're out there, and then you go behind this curtain, and suddenly you're in relative darkness, certainly relative darkness, not complete darkness. And you get there, and there's a, uh, there's a desk clerk there who is uh, obviously from Pakistan, a Pakistani. And, uh, but he speaks good English, and uh, I think he speaks a couple of other languages, and he's got cold drinks there. That's and, always great, right? You yeah. know, everywhere you go in the world, there's always someone that speaks English, and not only English, but a couple of different languages. Well, not so much from Americans. But. I would say that most places that's true. Yeah. I have been in a couple of places where that wasn't true. Right, right. But uh, in fact, some places in Russia where I couldn't find anybody that spoke English. But um, anyway, so. I go there and I check in and I, and I find out about the bus and all that stuff. And, uh, I'm going back and forth in and out of the, um, that little youth hostel, kind of looking around for a while, getting real hot, coming back, getting a soft drink, sitting down. And so they had a big table there and the table was, you could accommodate maybe eight, no more than eight. I would say maybe 20 people could sit around that table. It was a big, big slab of wood table and they had chairs around it and uh there was a chess game going and so the people were playing chess i like to play chess and so i found myself sitting across the table playing chess with this giant german guy and this guy's got red hair and the red hair is long enough that it's coming around all around the sides of his head covering the top of his shoulders all the way around back and his shoulders all the way around the front to the other side and he's got this giant beard, and the red beard's going down, and it's covering most of his chest. And it's, it, it covers his face up from underneath his eyes. It's under his nose. And all you can see, you can see his mouth when he opens his mouth. Otherwise, it's just a big, furry <laughs> beard. Yeah. And um, he's got heavy, heavy red eyelashes, and his hair in the front is coming down. And his, his, his hair's parted parted down the middle, but it's covered part of his, of his forehead as it comes down along the sides of his face. And he's about six foot three. He probably weighs 270 pounds, 260 pounds, giant man. Okay. And he's sitting across from me and he looks like a lion. He doesn't look like a human. All you can really see is his eyes and a little bit of the skin under his eyes. And he's just this beast. Okay. And so I'm playing chess with him, chess with him. And uh, so I speak a little German because I, I was in, uh, um, I took German when I was in college. And I ask him in German, what do you do? And his answer is life changing. Oh, wow. His answer is life changing. Because here I am, I have left the district attorney's office. Um, I broke up with the girl that I was with and I was sort of heartbroken and stuff. And uh, I'm traveling around the world and I'm thinking that I'm going to take this trip around the world and then I'm going to return to Louisiana and practice law maybe for the rest of my life. And uh, so this is just a hiatus in my life. But his answer changes all of that. What did he say? He said to me, I said, what do you do? And so he says, do you want to know what I do? Or do you want to know what I do so I can do what I do? Okay. And what that turned out to mean was 
that he goes to back to Germany and works as a carpenter so that he can get enough money to be who he is and who he is as a traveler. And so when he answers, what do I do? I'm a traveler. What do I do so that I can do what I do? I'm a carpenter. And at that moment, I became a traveler. And what I did so that I could do what I did was be a lawyer. Wow. It changed the way I looked at life. And so from then on, I made up my mind that I was going to see every place in this world that interests me. And the result of that is, has been an eye-opening experience. I mean, that's, that was 1978. And what is it now? It's 41 years now. Yeah. And I've been, name a place, I've been the most. Now, the Arab countries... Morocco. Are, I've been to Morocco. Yeah. Mongolia. I've been to Mongolia. Yeah, you showed me that stuff. That was cool. Yeah. Mongolia, Vietnam, yeah. India, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, that trip, I covered a lot of countries. But then since then, I've, I've gone back, for instance, to Eastern Europe recently. I went to Latvia and uh, Lithuania, Estonia. Right. You know, Poland. You were in Sri, Sri Lanka too, right? Well, Sri Lanka was, yeah, is another it's a completely different part of the world, yeah. Right, right. And recently to Sri Lanka. That's amazing. Right, in Australia. And course. you're still, tra you're 73, you're still traveling. Oh, yeah, I mean, I've got a trip yeah. planned now in September. I'm going to Africa. I'm going to South Africa, I'm going to Zimbabwe, and I'm going to Uganda. I want to see the gorillas. Nice. You know, and I yeah. want to see the lions and, the, you know, and I want to see the hyenas. and Right. And, and, and explore, course, right? Explore. Find out about the world. Right. I want to find out. Experience life. Exactly. I posted this quote the other day. I really loved it. Um, it, uh, it was basically, you know, it's talking about, you know, how we see the world. And uh, I forget exactly who the quote was by or how I came across it. I think it was in another book that I was reading. And it says, the only true voyage would be not to travel through a hundred different lands with the same pair of eyes, but to see the same land through a hundred different pairs of eyes. And well, the truth is you can't see the same country with the same pair of eyes. Right. The truth is, is that Heraclides was right. And that is you can't step into the same river twice. The river changes. You know, I go back to a place that I was in 20 years ago, and it's completely different. And I'm completely different. I have changed by my experiences, the things that I see. I mean, I, I would like to believe that I live the kind of life where I learn enough every day so that when I wake up, I'm not the same person that I was yesterday. Yeah, it's I'm amazing. something different. I'm something better, hopefully something with more perceptive, something that is um, more uh, open to learn new things, something that someone who is less ignorant. Sure, exactly, yeah. And I think that's, that's exactly how nature acts. And we, should just, we, we are nature, you know, we, we act in the same way. When a tree comes out of the soil and starts reaching towards the sun and getting absorbing the rain, it's growing, it's moving, you know, plants, animals, bugs, insects, you know, people, we're no different. We're, we need to move and grow and expand. And I think being a part and immersing yourself in, in over 120 different cultures, you get to see what it's like from your perspective. But if, you, if, you're, if you're ready and you're open, you can kind of almost see what it's like from the perspective of the people that are there. Exactly right. Exactly right. Let me tell you, when I, when I first started traveling, one of the things that I noticed was that you needed to study about the culture before you got there so that you could see. 
a lot of times you, you see only the surface, you know, like there are people who travel, for instance, to India and they stay in a five-star hotel and they don't go outside because it's too hot, you know, and then maybe they Yeah, take, why are you going to India? And then what they do is they take a taxi from their hotel to the Taj Mahal. They get there at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day when it's at its hottest. They walk around for 20 minutes and they go, I've been to the Taj Mahal. I'm ready to get back in the air-conditioned cab. Yeah, yeah. And they go back. Take 100 pictures, post yeah, it on somebody Instagram. Tells, you know, and they tell people, yeah, yeah, I've been to the Taj. Yeah. Well, you know, it's different. You know, when I went, what I did was I stayed in a youth hostel right outside of the Taj Mahal. And I bribed the guard at 7 o'clock in the morning so I could go in by myself. So I could see it by myself and I could walk around for an hour before they opened up the gates and let everybody else in. And, uh, you know, and I, when I stayed in a place that, uh, you know, I would, like you said, there were international travels from all over the world and, uh, and I got to see what was going on. The point is, is that there is paying attention and not paying attention and you can go to a place and not see what's there just like, uh, so you have to see it from their eyes. The thing that caused me to want to do that is um, when I was in Japan, my very beginning of my trip, I started on the, East Co on the West Coast in California, and my next I went to Hawaii, and then I went to Japan, that, that first long trip around the world. And uh, I got there, and one of the things that I did was I started to study Buddhism, and I bought a book by a guy by the name of Suzuki, who you know, explained Buddhism his way. Um, since then, of course, I think Eckhart Tolle's done a much better job of at least hitting me where I live. Maybe somebody else would like Suzuki's better, book better, and I don't want to get into a dispute about whose book's better. But Suzuki helped me understand that one of the things that they do is that, um, the, the gurus have koans, K-O-A-Ns. Do you know what that is? I've heard it, yeah. Okay, so what it is is a... The student comes to the master and asks the question, and the master then answers the question. And the answer that he gives him is not what you expect, and it's something that the student has to go off and think about. What, right. what did the master mean? And there was one particular poignant one that, that moved me and caused me to look at life differently, and that was the student says, what is truth? And the master says two bags of flour. And I'm thinking, what is that? What is two bags of flour? Well, it took me quite a while to come to a, an opinion about that because to say that I understand it completely and that my interpretation of it is exactly what the master had in mind would be more egotistical than even I can be. But whatever it's, for whatever it's worth, my solution to that problem was that um, he was saying that truth is survival. And two bags of flour represented survival. And then if you look at life that way, if you look at the people when you travel that way, what is it that they think that they need to survive? What do they think they need? Americans think that everybody in the house needs a car. Americans think that everybody in the house needs a phone. American thinks that every room needs to have a television. You know, these are things that they think they need, okay? They think they need a refrigerator, okay? I'm getting now back to more 
basic stuff. Right. Okay. But there are people in this world that don't have a refrigerator. There's people in this world that don't have clean drinking water. That's right. Okay. And so what does a man think that he needs to survive? That's where the truth is. That's where when you look at a society or you look at, at people, because once, once they have solved the survival problem, then they can start thinking about politics. Then they can start thinking about innovations. They can, you know, but right now we've got to, look, if I got to eat, I don't have time to think about how I'm going to fix my website, you know. That's just another complete out-of-the-realm impossibility. And so traveling around the world looking at it that way, what do people think they need to survive is a way to look at their society. And so it changed, of course. You know, the, each the, these little tidbits come along and change the way that I looked at life as, I've, as I passed through it. Yeah, amazing. And, and I, I think that did that for me too. Because I, I encountered a lot of people that didn't have – one percent of a lot of the things that we take for granted and we enjoy and they invited me into their home for a meal we had laughs they were happy the children were happy um you know i experienced a lot of a lot of situations like that and and even living in peru with uh the indigenous uh shamans and the the healers down there you know they live very very simply and very with the land and in in harmony with with the natural environment and um you know they still have they have cell phones you know they they they're they're involved in modern life but they're really taking it to like what do i really need to really really be fulfilled and be happy as a human being and you can't get that anywhere else but kind of these basic kind of things right like well, maybe you have a good idea of what those things are <laughs> well i mean the thing is that a lot of times it has to do with comparison you know you might have a guy who lives in a in a in a in a village, in a jungle, okay? And he's the head man, okay? And he gets to have all the bananas he wants or whatever it is that they eat and, and the women like him and, and he is having a great life. As far as he's concerned, he's, he's having a great life. And compared to the, th the kind of creature comforts that we have with a, an air-conditioned house and a heated house and we don't have the problems with bugs and we don't have to worry about stepping on a snake and we don't i mean there's so many things that we have that he doesn't have he's not aware that he doesn't have them he has a happy life he sees life the way he sees it and it's the way you look at life that determines what it is that you think you need to survive or what it is you think you need to be happy and you know of course we talk about the buddhist gurus who go and sit in a cave and they're at peace they have found peace, okay? That's not the way I would want to find peace. It's not the way I would want to spend my life. But I can't judge them in that respect. I have to respect the fact that they're at peace and, in fact, say to myself, I look around at this affluent society that I live in and how many people are not at peace? And the answer is 99.9% .9 of them are not at peace. Yeah.
Well, that concludes part one of this wonderful podcast with PL Cats. And uh, part two is coming up right now. Um, so as we recorded this over a couple days, you know, we took some breaks here and there. And uh, the first part of the podcast is very different from this coming up second part of the podcast. So uh, I really think that you guys are going to enjoy this one uh, just as much or maybe even more. Uh, you know, Paul shares a lot of wisdom here of being a, a parent and being a grandfather and his travel stories and how uh, all of his life experiences, all of his 73 years of living has impacted him and he shares a lot of great golden nuggets of wise wisdom with us in this second half of the podcast. And if you like what you hear, go check out all of his stuff. Author PL Cats on Instagram, Author PL Cats on Twitter, PL Cats on Facebook, and the book is Disorder. You can get on Amazon everywhere books are sold, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, download the iBooks. I don't know if anyone uses that crap, but you get it on Kindle, paperback, and it's coming soon to Audible very soon. Okay, part two, coming at you, hot and fresh. we need things because of advertising a lot of times most right of yeah you know we think you know we need a new iphone because it's got some feature that we didn't have before and i think that in some sense there are a lot of people now that are starting to notice that they don't need a new phone yeah the things that we really need yeah. we're lacking and we have holes in our souls and we're trying to fill these things this is what i think i think we're looking to exterior material things to fill those holes and the messages that we get from culture society you know pop culture all this stuff do this do that and then you'll be happy go to co like the the lie that i was told was all you got to do is go to college. If you can't afford it, take out a student loan, go to school, you'll get a job, you'll make money, you'll you'll live a cool life. I didn't know any better. I was a fucking kid. You know what I mean? Like I, the, the only way that I'm supposed to know, and my parents didn't even know. My parents were just like, yeah, that's what we, that's what we're told or that's what, you know, it seems like what you should do. And, you know, I love my parents, but, you know, it's it's like... And they didn't tell you wrong. They didn't tell me wrong. No, I mean, the it bottom was just that line they didn't is know. that getting a good education is useful and helpful to having a successful life the problem is is the way the system is set up with the student loans right uh you're putting your foot you're taking your foot out of one problem and you're putting your foot into another problem and 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 so you, you can't avoid the first one because having an education is absolutely essential your parents were right to tell you that but unfortunately, now you can't afford the second one either because unless you come from a wealthy family, a real wealthy family, uh, they're not going to be able to afford, like you say, to spend $40,000 a year in tuition or even if it's $27,000 a year in tuition. By the time you pay for your living expenses so that you can go to school and, and you maybe have gas for your car or health insurance or all those other things, 
you know, it gets up to $40,000. Right. Yeah. And I think the thing that I love about doing podcasts is the fact that we're able to talk and, and share some stuff and maybe it'll impact some people out there and they'll start thinking in a different way. And that's, I think, how you make changes in society is by spreading and sharing what you know. If it's good stuff, people resonate with it, they'll take it with them. But like you were telling me the other day about, you know, raising your kids and and specifically about the advice that you were giving your son, I thought was so great. You didn't want to make him dependent on you. You wanted him to think for himself. Right, right, right. So um, how how I got to all that, um, we talked earlier about non-delegable duties. And one of the non-delegable duties is raising your kids and, and getting them ready to get out into the world and deal with the world without your help because you're not going to be here forever. And if everything happens the way it's supposed to happen, you're going to die before they do. In fact, there's that old story about the king who brings the soothsayer in and he says, tell me something good. And he says, you die, your son dies, your grandson dies. <laughs> and so the... Uh, King says, wait a minute, that's not good. He says, oh, yes. He says, would you want it any other way? And of course, the king realizes that that is the way that you want it. You want to die, and then your son dies, and then your grandson dies. And so you know you're going to be gone at some point if everything works the way it's supposed to, and your children are going to need to be able to make the decisions that they need to make to have a happy life and to be secure and to have all the things that go together with whatever that means to them, which is what we were talking about a little while ago. Right. But anyway, so um, the key then is to teach your children to make good decisions. And you can't force them to learn that. And so that caused me to say, okay, well, if I can't force him to learn that, my son well, in particular, I'm just saying my son, it certainly worked the same way with my daughter. Um, how can I get him to want to learn how to make the decisions. And it occurred to me that what I would do is, he came to me one day and he said, Johnny's mother is letting him do something that you won't let me do. And I think, you know, I'm, he's 12 and I'm 12 and, or whatever it is, 10, whatever number age it was that he came to me. I think he was around 12. And uh, I said, look, Making decisions in your life is a pain in the ass. It's making a lot more work for me. I got to look at everything you're doing. I got to be, think about what's going on. I got to think about what your capabilities are. I got to think about all the things that go together to making a good decision and make the decision for you. I don't want to have to do that. The best thing that could happen to me is that you would make decisions for yourself and I could just live my life and just kind of keep an eye on you and, uh, and not have to do that. Uh, he says, okay, well, that's great. I, I'll be glad to make all the, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You're not yeah. going to get control of your life until you convince me that you know how to make good decisions. When you convince me you know how to make good decisions, I'm going to let you do whatever you want. So he heard me. But he didn't react right away. He went off and he was thinking for a while, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if I hit a home run, you know. I wonder if I got him where I yeah. want him, you know. Yeah. And, he, and, I, and I did. He came back and he said, Dad, he says, um, how do I make good decisions? You know, basically what he was saying to me was, in his own way, 
is how do I make decisions that you think are good? Because that's what I've got to do. I've got to convince you that these are good decisions so that you will let me have control of my life. That's what was going on in his head. So I got it exactly where I wanted it. He wanted to learn how to make good decisions, and he came and asked me how to do it. That's where you have to get your children. Your children have to get to the point where they are mentally ready to learn. And mentally ready to learn really means I want to learn. And so that's what happened. He came to me and he said, I want to learn. Aaron, one second. Just turn Can you put on silent? I'm turning off. Oh, okay, cool. So, um, yeah, he came to, he came to you and he and said, he, I want to learn. And that, when you told me that I was like, yes, this is exactly how to form relationships with people. And especially, you know, with your children, because you are giving them autonomy and giving them power to want to, to voluntarily call, like to create the willingness inside of themselves that it's this thing that comes from in from them you know they always say with with good marketing and and sales you want people to come up with the idea themselves but you want to kind of guide them to the idea you know and i think this is the, this is fantastic because it creates it creates the birth of this idea comes from within and so now there's more he he has more of a understanding of what this means for him acting in the world you know and it's not that he's doing it to please you and it's not that he's doing it because you told him to he's not you know cuz that's not going to happen right when you force someone to do something you get the opposite reaction right yeah i don't i don't want a resistance i want openness and so i'm he's got a carrot there that he knows how to get he can get this carrot. This carrot is within reach. He can do this. What he has to do is he has to, le- he has to learn the tool. And he wants to learn the tool. He wants to be free. He wants to have control of his life. As That's ev- right. Yeah. Every you're, child. You're, you're asking him. Right. It's like, hey, dad, bir- build me a birdhouse. And mm-hmm. you're like, sure, you could, you could do that. You could certainly do that, right? Yeah. But what's that going to teach him? Right. It's like, hey, why don't we do this together? You take the lead on it. And uh, let's see what we can come up with. I'll help you build the birdhouse that you want to build, not that we'll do it together. I'll help you build your birdhouse. If you want to, you want to build it, I'll help you. Right. If, you want to have, if you want to have freedom from my uh, dictatorial uh, position over you, then I've given you a way out, and you decided to choose it. You decided to accept it. You decided that that's what you want to do. Okay, great. So then we start through, and we talk about, we talk about things like risk-benefit ratio, Okay, I don't use those words with a 12 year old, but I the idea is that what are you going to get out of this? You know, you're going to spend all of your allowance and you're not going to have any money for candy bars. Is that okay? Is it that's going to be, you know, is it going to be good enough? Is this thing going to be good enough that you're willing to give up your entire allowance? Are you willing to give up two months worth of allowance? Right. You made him think. Yeah. Are you is this something that's so dangerous that you might lose an eye? Because if it is. I don't care how much fun it is. It's not worth it, right? So you have to say, okay, how, what is the worst thing that can happen? And then you say to yourself, okay, if I can accept the worst thing that happened, 
can happen. If that happens, if the worst thing happens, even if it's unlikely, if I can accept that worst thing, then then it's still this is still an open thing I might be willing to do. Okay, if if if, it, if the answer is I cannot accept the worst thing, it's finished. That's it. You can't do that. That's simple as that. And it, and I created a a hierarchy for him to look at about how making decisions. Then and then of course sometimes making a decision to do something is also making a decision not to do something else. And so then you have to say to yourself, okay, this thing is going to bring me say a ninety on the fun scale. And, but I have to give up something on the 70 scale. So the difference is only 20. And if the difference is 20 and now I've created a risk that I didn't have before, then maybe that difference, that 20 difference, isn't enough to take that risk. Even though, right. yeah. you see? Trade-offs, sacrifices. Trade-offs, sacrifices. Yeah, because this is inevitable. This is what life is. And life right. is a negotiation. And so little yeah. by little, we went through the different parts of making a good decision and then what I said to him was this when when I finally started really making good decisions I said to him I said this is what we're going to do when you want to do something I want you to come and present it to me and I'm going to ask you to take me through your thought process and explain to me why you have decided that this is a good decision and if I agree with your thought process I'm just going to say go do it and if I don't agree with your thought process, I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to have an opportunity to defend your thought process to me. And if you do that successfully, I'm going to let you do it. And if you can't do it successfully, then I'm going to tell you, no, you aren't there yet. You don't know how to make good decisions well enough because look at this thing over here that you ignored. That was a problem that you didn't put put into your equation. You didn't mention it when you explained it to me and it's a problem and you didn't deal with it and you're not there yet. Yeah. Good and, skills that a lawyer has, right? Well, it's good skills for everybody. It's good skills for everybody. Making yeah. decisions. And so little by little, he got to that. And then when he got to the point <clears throat> where he, it seemed to me that most or all of his decisions were, were well done or good enough, because one of the things that you have to do as a parent is you have to allow your children to make mistakes because mistakes are very educating <laughs> and so at some points I said to him, I don't agree with that decision, but if you want to do it, do it. And then I just let him do it. And then when things didn't work out very well, I'll let life teach him because life, life is a great teacher too. <clears throat> as long as he wasn't going to lose an eye and he wasn't going to get crippled and he wasn't, let him make a mistake, you know, let him make some mistakes. That's part of, of letting children, but you have to decide which ones you're going to do. But when we got, finally got to the point where he's making really good decisions, and it seemed like I said to him, I said, okay, now you're in control of your life, but the only thing is you still have to listen to me. And he said, what do you mean I still have to listen to you? I thought you said I would, I would have control of my life. And I said, no, you do have control of your life. I told you that, and I'm not going back on it. But <clears throat> I'm older than you. I love you. I've been paying attention. Sometimes I've picked up some things that maybe you haven't picked up, probably. So when you make a decision, <clears throat> if I feel like I want to put my two cents in, you have to listen. You don't have to follow it, but you have to give me an opportunity to put my two cents in. You have to give me an opportunity to give you my take on what you're going to do, my opinion, and then you go do what you want to do. But we have to have that deal. And that is a deal that we're going to have between us, not now, just when you're a kid, but for the rest of your life. As your father, 
I want to be able to, without pissing you off and without um, infringing on your life, to say to you, hey, Mike, this is one of those times when I just want to make sure you see what I see. Because then if you see what I see and you still want to go where you're going, fine. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. But I'd like to point out to you, hey, man, did you notice that there's a snake under that bush? Or did you notice that that same guy has been sued 25 times for cheating people in a situation like yours? Or whatever it is that I noticed, okay? And so <coughs> um, so we have that relationship. And so w- what I have been able to do with my son is have, he's my best friend. He's the one that I like to talk to the most. He's brilliant and he's knowledgeable and because of the way I've raised him, He's been to Bhutan, he's been to India, he's been to Dubai, he's been to Egypt, he's been to Israel, he's lived in Israel, he's lived in Ecuador, he has, um, he's living in Australia right now. He is a man of the world. He's smart and he's seen a lot. That's the way I raised him, okay? And he's fun to talk to. And he brings things to the table. He tells me things. He tells me things. He explains things to me. The other day, he explained to me about neonatal cardiology because that's what he was studying and he wanted to talk to me about it. (coughs) So I know a lot about something that I'm going to have absolutely no use for in my life, but something to know. And I'm kind of curious like that, you know? Yeah. And then you were talking about before, you know, how that you know, the, the best thing that could happen is that you you die, your father dies, that, that, your son that, dies, and the then son your dies, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, and Thich Nhat Hanh, I love Thich Nhat Hanh. Me too. Uh, and he says some amazing things. And yeah. one of the things that really resonated with me that he said was that your, your children is a continuation of you. You know, he says that, that it's when you go, that you can't, you know, we, you can't like, take anything with you. You can leave something that can hopefully make the world a better place, and you know the values, your beliefs, those things in a continuation of your yourself. Well, that's absolutely the truth. In fact, I realized it um, <clears throat> when um, that nothing that you do during your lifetime, nothing that you do during your lifetime, outlasts. Wait, nothing that you do during your lifetime outlasts the way you raise your children. If you gain a lot of money or if you become a scientist, you know, even Einstein is becoming part of the history of science rather than science. Right. Because some of his ideas have been refined and changed. and Yeah, theories. Yeah. Some of his theories. And eventually maybe all of them will be because... That's what we do. We go like uh, Camus said in the myth of the Sisyphus. We right. go from falsehood to falsehood, not from truth to truth, as we refine our ideas. You know, when um, the ancient Greeks said that everything was made out of air, fire, and water, and later they said, no, it's air, fire, water, and um, I don't know what the fourth thing that they said right now. But anyway, they, they added something else to it, and then eventually we decided that um, we have... Um, elements, and then we decide that not, not that not no, it's not elements. The basic thing is not elements; it's uh, atoms. And then we said, "Oh no, no, it's not atoms. It's electrons, neutrons, and now we've got a whole bunch of other 
particles inside of an atom. And so what Camus said basically was is that we went from falsehood to falsehood, okay? Um, right. We, we, we well, air, air go fire, from mistakes water, to mistakes. Or, and wind yeah. or something right. or, or whatever. But anyway, the point is that <clears throat> we're moving in, the, in a direction. Now, Camus says that since we don't know when we're right, we may move forward and backward in that continuum. We may move to something that's more right and then move to something else that isn't quite as right and then maybe move forward again to something that is more correct than either of the things that we thought before. As we move forward in our goal and our humanity to understand the world around us and physics and chemistry and all those other things. So, so the thing is this, that even if you're a scientist, what you do doesn't necessarily last for several generations. And if you accumulate a lot of money, that can be lost in a short time too. If, so if you build a building within a certain amount of time, that building is deteriorating unless somebody repairs it and all that kind of stuff. But what you can do that will last more or longer for more generations is teach your children how to, how to raise their children. Because if, they, if you do a good job doing that, if you are able to assume that you like my idea about how to motivate a child to learn how to make good decisions, if, if you can teach your children to use that technique to raise their children, and that's not the only technique that I use to raise my children. There's lots of them that have to do with an attitude, for instance, toward healthy food, an attitude toward not smoking, an attitude toward not drinking, an attitude toward not drinking and driving. And so all those kinds of things. Um, when to do drugs, for instance. Children should not do drugs before they're 25, 26 years old because their brains are rewiring. Re yeah, hear that, okay. kids? Yeah. Okay. Stay off drugs. Well, I'm not saying stay off drugs permanently. I'm <laughs> no, saying that I'm saying that there's a time, and I don't know when the biology is exactly. It might be 13 or 14 or 15, and then it might go to 22 or 23, and instead of 25, I don't know the numbers, but the numbers are somewhere in there that your brain completely rewires. And if you take LSD or or uh, ecstasy or um, I don't know what other drugs, alcohol, none, nothing's good for you during that time. Your brain needs to to rewire itself without the um, confusion that drugs might bring to it. But that's not saying that you should never do drugs. But the point is, is that there's lots of things that I try to impart to my children other than just the idea that, I, that they need to learn how to make good decisions. But of course, making good decisions is the heart of it. Because making good decisions involves making decisions about doing drugs. It makes decisions about whether you want to drive while you're drinking, making decisions about whether or not you're willing to sacrifice in order to get an education. And I'm not suggesting, incidentally, that we give a free education to everyone and that that, doesn't, that means that there's going to be no sacrifice with education because there's a giant sacrifice. You have to have the emotional intelligence to have delayed gratification. You have to be able to study on a Saturday night because you've got a big exam Monday. You need to be able to give up the idea of going to the fraternity party or whatever it is that you were going to do. That kind of thing that you have to suffer to get your education, it's not free. 
Right. And you have to decide, is this worth it to me? It maybe it's it not. Me? Maybe going to a plumbing school and learning a trade, maybe something like that. That's maybe right. just trying to start off working a sales job or, hey, maybe maybe take a risk, go for what you really love and be creative and try and make it as an artist. You right. know, But everything comes with a price. Everything has a cost. Everything has a sacrifice. Life inevitably is suffering to a certain extent. And if you can justify that suffering with something that makes sense for you, then you live a pretty good life, right? And, and I saw an expression the other day, which really hits me at home. And it says, everything, the cost of everything is the time you put into it. Time is the thing that we have only a limited amount of. We don't even know how much we have. We can get the call tomorrow that, hey, you've got terminal cancer, you've got three months. We don't know how much time we have. But the amount of time that we put into things is what it really costs. And the ability to have the emotional intelligence to say, I am going to give up the fun of this moment. And whether or not your emotional intelligence only includes being able to give up a weekend, and my into- emotional intelligence is it gives up, give up 12 years to become a doctor, whatever it is, that emotional intelligence is what allows us to move forward. It allows us to make decisions. And so that's part of the decision tree, too. Right. Yeah. Okay. And and making that decision for yourself is good because it, it, it brings you into the reality of the world that you're not going to have other people that you could depend. Your parents might not be there for you all the time, nor, nor can they be there for you all the time. Right. You're coming into the world as a fully empowered and autonomous being and taking on the responsibility that it takes to control the the reality to create the reality that you wish to live in right? exactly and so that's part of the reason why i encouraged my son for instance to take a job for four months in israel where he's going to be on the other side of the world and he's going to have all those day-to-day problems and money problems and 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 by himself on the other side of the world he's not going to die he's not going to so i'm not worried that he's going to have something that's going to happen to him well i certainly could i mean it's possible that one of those rockets could come across from you know, Gaza and land where in the restaurant that he's in or some terrorist could get him. And it's certainly more dangerous than living here in Boulder. Yeah. Right. But but still, yeah. encouraging him to be in a situation where he has to make these decisions on a day-to-day basis for himself and, and learn how to do that. It, while I'm still around where I could, you know, bring in the Ponies Express and come at the last minute and save save the day if it's necessary. Sure. But... um. But let him have those experiences. Let him live in Ecuador, like I said. Let him live right now in Australia while he's going to medical school and learn how to live in another culture and make all those decisions. That's part of growing up. It's part of being, of course, he's a man now. But still, any man who thinks that he's learned all the things that he needs to know hasn't learned the most basic thing about life, you know, that uh, we're always learning. And when you stop learning, you're dead. Right. Yeah, that's you know. right. Yeah, and 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 getting back to what we were talking about earlier in the in the show, like you know, this sort of dependency on you know, we have we have this society, you know, this this power structure that likes to just kind of take control. Don't worry, we got the wheel. We're making decisions, whatever it is. Um, you know, they kind of tell us what is going on. They're not necessarily leading by example, showing us. We don't have a group of wise elders necessarily that are guiding us. And you see this too with the way that we treat old people in our society. We cast them away, put them in old folks' homes. We're just like, whatever. 
you know, but really, if you look back at the tribal societies and a lot of ways that people live around the world when they're living with their families and they have the aunt, the uncle, the mother, the cousin, the grandmother in the house, you're getting wisdom from experience from years. You're getting, you know, and the way that you talk about with your, with your child is like, you know, you're empowering them. You're, you're, you're creating the, this, this thing inside of them that says, I want to take ownership of my life. I want to think for myself. And we have this sort of betrayal in our society of that from our, what we call, you know, what are supposed to be leaders, politicians, you know, government contractors, even higher education systems, these privatized student loan companies and all these other things. It's really a betrayal of our tribe. You know, it's a betrayal of, of our of our group. Right. And it's not because our leaders are stupid. No, they know what's going on. No. It's because they've decided the direction that they want to take us in and they're willing to get us to take our eye off the ball. You know, and the the more that we have to work, you know, the people that for instance that that aren't making even $15 an hour and can't survive. They're working two and three jobs. They don't have time to pay attention. Right. They don't have survival. And that's, and that's just what about they survival. want. The people that are, you know, they think they're on a boat that's going to A and we're on a boat that's going to B. And the guys that are running the boat are taking us to B whether we want to go there or not. Yeah, we don't even know where we're going. We don't know where we're going. Yeah, that's right. and and yeah, that's well, we that's, do know some things. We know, for instance, a lot that of they're destroying the environment. Yeah, for and sure. And they want to ignore that, right? Because they want to get rich today, you know. And they're going to live for whatever it is, you know. And I'm an old white man, but I mean, t- still, I think more because I have children and I have grandchildren and I have and I have a, a feeling of responsibility to leave the world better than it was when I came in. And as we know, that's just not happening. Right. Okay. We are destroying. You know, you look at the people on Easter Island that were willing to cut down the last tree. You know, I went to Easter Island to find out what happened there. What, you know, what happened? I mean, you've got people, you know, this gets into religion, but you know what they, they decided that they were going to build these moas. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. So these giant black stone heads. Oh, okay. You've seen those yeah, pictures. Yeah, Easter Island Easter for Island. sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what happened is they, one group decides that they're going to take this volcanic rock, which is relatively lightweight compared to other rock, but still heavy. They're going to take this, this volcanic rock and they're going to carve it into the face of their leader to uh, give him homage because he was a great leader. And they, they carve this moa out of, out of uh, volcanic stone and they, they stick it up in the ground and, they, and they, most a lot of them had hats on them and, they, uh, and they're looking out to the ocean. And so what does the other tribe do? Oh, well, our leader's better than your leader. I'm going to do one too. And so they do them and they, have, and they end up having moas all over the island. Well, the problem is how are you going to move these big stones? How are you going to move them from the quarry where they they form them and dig them out of the ground um, to the beach and then stand them up? And the answer is they rolled logs. They rolled them on logs to get them from one place to another by taking the last log as it, log as it comes out of the back, putting it out front, and having it continue to roll like a group of wheels. They get it to where they want to do it. Well... That was so important to them, they cut down the last tree, okay? Mm. They're in the middle of the ocean, and they need to fish to survive, and they cut down the last tree. They can't build any more boats. 
Yeah, it's cannibalism, right? It's well, like, you I mean, know, maybe you're, you're, I, you're, you're, you're destroying your, your land, yourself, you're, you're, you know, you're consuming each other. Right, it's like, right. it's like, that's, and that's what we're, what this mess that we're in now, we're like blindly just like kind of going along with what's going on and we're destroying the whole, the whole place and our whole environment. And for what, you know, we get back to talking about what are our basic needs? Family, connection, learn how to make good decisions, travel and see in the world, connecting with other people, learning about things, never stop learning about things, you know, living in a harmonious and beneficial way so that we're happy and we're not depressed and sad and have anxiety and yelling at our partners and our kids. Right, right. And, and you know. of course, because, <laughs> and now it gets back again to the student loan system because the right. student loan system has deprived a generation of the opportunity to have the American dream that would allow us to have all those things you just said. Yeah, those basic good things those that make basic, us feel warm and good, good inside. Things. Exactly. And it deprives them of the emotional intelligence. It really does. It deprives them of their ability to look at life in a, more, in a wiser way, in a, in a more knowing way. So, um, so, so we were just talking in the kitchen about some stuff and there was something interesting that you said about, uh, traveling, right. And how you're, you're getting exposed to news from around the world. Oh yeah. Different points of view. Yeah. When you, when you talked about how the government wants us to believe certain things, that is absolutely the truth. I mean, if you go, if you travel, it's one of the things you notice when you travel is that each country has its point of view of the world that it's selling to its people. And if you look at the media, you look at the news in the newspapers or the people on TV, they are giving information which uh, reinforces the opinion of the way the world is. I mean, if you're in Venezuela and, you, and, uh, and they're controlling the media there, they're giving you the impression that the United States is is the big bad guy because of whatever reasons they have. And I'm not saying we aren't the big bad guy because we are in many ways. But, uh, you know, Russia will have its own impression, give its own impression of people of how bad things, for a long time it would tell the people in Russia how bad it is for people who live in capitalism and how much better it is for the people that live in our society. And right. they'll, and they'll, they'll twist the news so that everything that they get to the people reinforces their way of looking at, at life. And they're doing it right here in the United States and they're doing it in every country. That's just, yeah, it's, it happens in different ways. And so yeah. when you, when you travel and you hear about a particular event and you hear it from, let's say in Afghanistan, you're in Afghanistan and you hear about it there and then you hear about it again in Iraq and then you hear about it again in England and then you hear about it again when you get home and there's a little twist to it. It's not exactly the same facts or it's, it certainly doesn't draw the same conclusions. Right. We like to paint, <clears throat> we like to paint things as black and white issues, you know, but really there's a kernel of truth to, to all the perspectives that are happening. It's somewhere in between. It's somewhere in the gray. It's somewhere in the nuance. It's somewhere in the existence of exchange and dialogue and, you know, being educated about things, but thinking, knowing how to think about things, not necessarily being told what to think. You don't have to lie to get people to come to a different opinion. You know, uh, one of the things that I noticed as a trial lawyer is that um, point of view determines what you know. 
if you think of a table, think of, of, a, of a rectangular table, and thinking about seeing that table from a distance, and you're looking at the short side of the table, and you ask a witness, how wide is the table? He only sees the short side of the table, and he tells you that the table's four feet wide. And then if you turn the table sideways so that the long side now is facing the witness, and you ask the witness the same question, how wide is the table? Well, he's going to say, um, it's, it's not four feet. He's going to say it's eight feet. Okay. And then if you look at the table a different way and you look at it so that you're looking at it kind of catacorner, it's even going to be greater than eight feet. And so you don't have to lie to come to a different conclusion. Point of view determines everything that you know. Right. Okay. And so, uh, if they can point you in the right direction, they're going to get the response that they want. Um, and so, for instance, um, one of the things that um, I studied when I was doing trial work is something called NLP, neurolinguistic programming. And um, <clears throat> basically, um, the idea is to generate the kinesthetic response that you want, the feeling response that you want. And so you can tell the story in a very dissociated way just like a picture on the wall or a TV program or something. Um, it's happening to somebody else, and, it's, and you're saying, for instance, in an automobile accident, if you say, um, I was stopped at a light and I was rear-ended by a truck, that might be the way you would tell the story in a dissociated way. In an associated way, you might say, I looked up in the rearview mirror and I saw the truck screeching to a halt behind me, and then I could feel it bump me and my head moved back and... And suddenly I realized that I had my, something wet on my head and, and it turned out to be warm and I touched it and when I looked at my hand, it was, it was blood. I mean, if I tell it that way, it's an associated way. And in the associated way, I'm going to get a different kinesthetic response than I'm going to get from a telling it in the story as if it were a picture on the wall. A picture on the wall is not going to get you in the gut the way I just described it with looking in the rearview mirror. Right. And so the people who tell us the facts of the world don't have to lie to change the way we respond to that in a feeling way. And also they don't have to lie to tell us that the table is four feet or eight feet because they just take the point of view that gives the facts that they want, that reinforces the point of view that they want the population to have. Right, the and one that serves the that's agenda. Right. That's right. Yeah, and so that's why, for instance, um, Karl Rove suggested during the Reagan administration that they create a news network that would foster their point of view, and that's how Fox News came into being. Right. Yeah. You know, and so that's. I mean, that's that's. It's not an accident. Sure. This. Yeah, and I think it, it's just you know you look at what happens on an individual level. And just magnify that, you know, to these systems and structures and institutions that we have that, you know, you have all these kind of these people in there Mm -hmm. trying to move things to their point of view and to their way. And, um, you know, that is, I think, something that has to come with just people being more informed to what's going on, learning about themselves more, learning about their world more, um, and then able to kind of like correct that and get get people who we can look at that are like, okay, cool. This seems to be some good decisions that are being made here that are serving, 
you know, rather than ser- that are serving us. I mean, I just saw recently, like, you know, like what Netflix and Amazon both paid zero dollars in taxes. So, you know, and when we look at all this stuff, like you were bringing up before about the water pollution and 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 these types of things, you know, the the billions that we spend on war and all this stuff and the student loans. You look at this stuff. If you look at it with the, the ability to think for yourself, I think you could come to the conclusion that it, like this is pretty fucking. This is fucked up. Like this is weird. It is. Yeah. Incidentally, we did not talk about water today. Right. We talked yeah. about water yesterday. So we can talk we about can, that another time. Yeah. We can talk about that another time. Yeah. Water's a big problem. Right. Water's a big problem. But I think I think we you know we t- we went over kind of like you mentioned how you got started in working as a lawyer, but then you went off on your travels and kind of becoming aware, learning how to to think and questioning things, seeing stuff from other people's perspectives, and then you know how this informs you to raise children and how important that is. Um, you know, it's it's a really it's a really interesting node of consciousness that you're inhabiting in order to have these experiences and then be able to share them, make sense of them, and understand them. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about working, you know, as a, you know, because you've wrote this book, uh, Disorder. Maybe we should talk about the book and, you know, talk a little bit about what your experience was, you know, because this comes written from the point of view of a trial lawyer. So you could you could tell a little bit about what that was like too. I think that would be pretty cool. Well, <clears throat> the book is about um, I, I, the impetus for the book was that I became aware that um, a lot of the young people were getting themselves caught in a snare and a trap that had been set for them by the by the big boys and uh, the idea of uh, stealing their youth and their the best part of their life turning them into indentured servants or having these kids make decisions that are um, not what we would hope. Right. Like, for instance, girls prostituting themselves or becoming strippers or yeah. or going online and taking off their clothes so that people can pay to do this, watch them or whatever. Right. Or, um, or young men going into the military in order to avoid that snare with the uh, – with the student loan system. And so I, I, I'm traveling across Russia and I realize that, that this story needs to be told and how can I tell it? I mean, I'm, I don't have the, the, the following or the political position or anything for to get up on a grandstand. Anybody's going to listen to what I have to say. So I thought, well, maybe if I write a book that's interesting enough that has the student loan system in it at the heart of the, st- of the story, that maybe I'll create an awareness of the problem. So I got the idea, and um, it's about two young people, uh, a young man who, um, in order to avoid the student loan system, joins the military. He's from a, a small farm in a small town his family loves him but they can't afford to him just to pay for him to go to college and uh and so he joins the military and he goes to afghanistan and he gets wounded and he comes home and he comes home to new orleans which is a place that i lived for many years and i know very well um and uh he decides to go to uno which is not that expensive he's got a certain amount of money that the army's going to give him or the um uh, to go to school and he takes that money and he and he starts going to school, and he falls in love with a young woman. And it turns out that the young woman has decided to become a prostitute in order to pay for her college to avoid the student loans. Yeah, like a high-class call girl, right? 
Yeah, I mean, as expensive as she can get away with because she doesn't, this isn't what she wants to do. This, she's, this is a goal. This is something that she's doing on. Yeah. Like uh, a, like an Elliot Spitzer girl. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that, um, he falls in love with her and he's, he's sort of in uh, a difficult spot because, um, she's telling him, I'm not going to quit. You know, I'm going to do this until I'm finished paying for college. And, uh, so they become lovers, and um, he has to put up with this. And she has a couple of customers or clients or whatever you want to call them who turn out to be very evil men, but also very powerful economically and politically. And um, they're gloating about the student loan system that's basically put her in a position where she's given them blowjobs. And... Uh, she hears them talking, and she videotapes the conversation. She takes it home. Her boyfriend, who is um, changed by the war with PTSD and OCD and with a crippled hand, and uh, he feels like this is something that he needs to do something about. And the story ends up with a murder and a murder trial. And um, I've had many, 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 many trials. I've been, I've been a lead trial lawyer in over 300 jury trials. Um, probably more than half of them were criminal trials when I was either a public defender or an assistant DA at different points in my career. Uh, so defending or prosecuting in criminal court in New Orleans. And so uh, I know that, that story very well on what happens in the criminal justice system in New Orleans. And so uh, everything that happens in the book, from the investigation all the way through the trial, is things that could happen in real life. None of it is real. None of it is, all of it is fiction. But every objection, every ruling on the objection, every everything could actually happen in a real murder trial. So that... Uh, I think the reader would get a feeling for what it's like to be in such a trial from the inside because I tell the story from the, from the point of view of the prosecutor or the defense attorney depending on what part of the story that I'm in, you know, what she's thinking and what, what, she, what he's thinking and that kind of thing and, and what, the judge, what the judge is doing and why he's doing it and so forth so that uh, you get the feeling for it. And then it also take you inside the jury room. Um, but it's... Um, it's a story I think that'll hold your interest and and be fun to read, but it's also a story that's designed to try to get the readers to recognize that there's this horrible cancer in our society, the student loan system, that has been created by the good old boy system to get a bunch of insurance companies and banks and individuals a lot of money and a lot of control over the next generation. And they are stealing, like we said before, they're stealing the American dream from a whole generation of Americans. And there's just few of us who can help our children enough to have them escape the uh, snare. Yeah, and yeah, it's 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 awesome. I loved reading it, and I love how it you know it really plays out like a like a chess match, you know, and you really get that feeling for all the details, all like everything that goes into presenting a case. And really what you're, what you're showing here is an example of 
the process of the justice system in our country and what it's, you know, what, why we have it. And I think when we are, we've had a lot of talks and talking and telling me about, you know, working for the DA or the, you know, being on the prosecution, the defense, like, you know, and I was asking you like, well, what, you know, is it, is one side tougher than the other? And your, your answer was great because, you know, you really kind of made me understand that the point is to participate in this system that we've laid out that says, let's look at all the facts. Let's all look at all the evidence. Let's look at it from all kinds of angles and perspectives. And let's try and come up with the best decision that we can make here. Right? Right, right. I mean, you know, from the defense's point of view, oftentimes you're looking at facts that you can't refute. You can't. I mean, if a if a witness says that they saw your client leaving the bank, uh, you can't get around that. Okay. Now you might be able to get around that if you can question, you know, how far were you away and how long of an opportunity did you have a chance to see this person? Did they have on a hat? Did they have on a disguise? All that kind of stuff. But then there's some facts that you, there's no wiggle room at all. I mean, like fingerprints or or. Uh, um, that you were arrested at the scene, okay? If you're arrested at the scene, it's hard to say it was a Jew, okay? Right, You yeah. know, I mean, so... Hey, they grabbed the wrong guy. Yeah, yeah. Now, now grab the wrong guy, now that's another question. If you, if you were the one that was arrested at the scene, then maybe you've got to say that they grabbed the wrong guy. That's the idea. So, um, yeah. So, uh, from, the, from the point of view of the defense, the job is to just, Give your client the f- best trial that he can. Hold the state's hand in the fire in the sense that make them prove everything that they have to prove to win this case and contest the places where you've got a place, you've got an edge to contest. But give them the things that you can't win because you don't want to lose your credibility to the jury. Right, yeah. You know. Do you ever watch the HBO limited series, John Adams? I've not. It's it's pretty good. I don't know how accurate it was uh, to the truth, but it's it's hard to get there sometimes throughout the through the thick thickness of history. Um, but there was a scene in the beginning of the John Adams documentary where John Adams is a, he's a lawyer in in Boston, and there was the incident. I think uh, what do they call it? The where the British soldiers fired on the. Oh, the tea party. The, yeah, there, there was the, what was it like? Uh, I'm blanking on the name. Bloody, the, the Boston Massacre. That's mm. what the Boston Massacre. Oh, yes, Massacre. right. And it was a, a big event that happened where the British soldiers, you know, fired on the, um, uh, Americans the, the Americans. But it was a, a point where, yeah, like, you know, and then the newspapers were like, British soldiers fire on Americans, murder in the streets, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, they called it the Boston Massacre. And, uh, in the in the show, I, and like I said, I don't know how accurate this is, but in the show, they showed kind of the nuance, the gray area, like what happens when you have these occupying forces in the streets, and then the civilians are there, and they're upset, and the soldiers, they're just trying to do their job, and then, you know, th- there's people throwing rocks, and like, what turned out, what, what John Adams did was he, he presented in the trial, well, he found out in the trial that what happened was one of the soldiers fired by accident without being given orders by the commanding officer. And then once he fired, then the other people started, you know, the people started getting shot. And then the other soldiers fired because they thought they had been commanded to fire. 
But Adams, the way that he in the show, the what they say in the show is that John Adams took the the trial defending the British soldiers because that's what his job was to do, and he wanted to forget about his bias of being an American citizen and all this, or you know, I mean, the co- colony of being le- uh, loyal to the colony of Boston. He said. I am going to play this to the justice system. Let's leave this to the justice. Let's leave this to the facts. Let's find out what's really going on here. Because, you know, so that's that's the system that we had created to determine the truth so we can give a fair uh, reward or punishment or whatever to the, to the parties involved. So that kind of way of understanding things I think is a is a pretty good way of of going about, you know. Uh, well, I mean, if you're not going to do the best you can for your client, then you got to get off the case. As right. simple as that. You can't just say, "I'm going to represent Mike, but I think he's guilty, and I'm going to let him be found guilty." You can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want that. You, you know, I don't want that. Okay. So obviously, but the the on the other hand, on the other side of it, the prosecutor he's got a responsibility to do justice. If he doesn't really believe that this person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, if he doesn't really believe that, he's supposed to drop the case or reduce the charges to something that he does believe the person's guilty of. But you should never go forward with a case that he's prosecuting when he doesn't actually believe that the person is guilty. And uh, unfortunately, in our justice system in the United States, there's a lot of uh, macho competition. How many cases did you win? And you know, if they think they can win it, they're going to go after you whether they really believe you did it or not. I mean, or if they have some serious doubt or even if they have a reasonable doubt, you know, I mean, that's just not what's supposed to happen. Right. And and nothing is ironclad. The system isn't with, without its loopholes and holes and corruption. That, that's possible. You well, know, the truth we is see this, that, especially in high-profile cases, you know, you could see that. There's no doubt The about OJ it. case, you know, yeah. the, all this stuff. But, but our uh, system is broken on another level, and yeah. that is that there are a lot of times when the prosecutor will offer a plea bargain to someone who is totally innocent. And then his choice is not to accept the deal and maybe risk 20 years in prison or accept the deal and accept two months in prison or six months in prison, even though they're innocent even though they didn't do anything or they didn't do what they were charged with, you know? And so um, the system is broken in that respect. You know, I have spoken to clients in the public defender's office and I'm saying to them, um, if you didn't do this, we should go to trial. And they're saying, I don't want to risk it. You know, I didn't do it, but I'd rather, I could get back to my family in six months and they need me, you know, or I can get a suspended sentence. And uh, I'll plead guilty to felony if I can get a suspended sentence. Just get me out of here. I need to go back and take care of my family. Or I, I need to, I'm leaving Louisiana. I'm going to go someplace else, Colorado, wherever you are. You know, I'm, I'm going to get out of here. These people don't like me. And, I, and it's okay. I'll plead guilty. I'll play my fine or whatever it is. I didn't do anything. But I don't want to take a chance on ending up in prison for 10 years. And so there's a lot of that going on, and that's a bad that's a bad part of our system, you know. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think every system is going to have problems. You know, it's just 
It's about sort of recognizing what that is, being aware, being alert of it, being ready to come up with plans to try and improve it and fix it. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think, I can't help but keep going back to kind of like the larger picture and just like our society and where it's going. It's like, we don't have this ability to really improve on our system so much. I mean, if you even look at the education system, we haven't changed how that works. It's been the same since its inception. Kids come into a room, sit in a desk, looking forward at a teacher and there, that's your education. You know, there's so many other ways to educate people. There's so many ways. I learned a ton outside of school. You learned a ton outside of school. There's learning is not constricted to this one environment, you know. No, no, I mean that's really kind of an elaboration of what I said earlier about the non-delegable duty. Right. You know, you just can't learn enough in school to really deal with life. You've got to have, you know, you've got to have a mentor who is there not only telling you or giving you the advice that you need, but also creating an example for you on how to live life. You know, and that example is important. Yeah. You know. And so is that, you did this with your your child. You get you gave him some good advice and showed him how to live life, and he figured things out for himself and made his decisions. Is that, is that what happened with you too? Was your dad like that? Or no. Your parents? No. Uh, I was raised in a different way, and it wasn't bad. Um. My family pretty much, unless I did something really outrageous, they pretty much gave me my head very early, very early. I mean, I I went off to school in the morning and I decided what I wanted to do and I just had to be back before dark, you know? And I had to, of course, not get into any trouble. Yeah, is this, what, 1950s? I graduated from high school in 1963. Okay. So, yeah, I was 15. It was 1959 when I started high school. But, I mean, I had decided I was a little bitty, skinny, nothing guy. And uh, I decided, well, if I was going to be little, I was going to have to, I wanted to be strong. So I started going to the gym. And going to the gym meant I had to walk from the high school that I was going to school at for about six blocks to get to go to St. Charles Avenue. I don't know. It might've been more than six blocks. It was quite a ways. And then, um, I catch the streetcar and I take the streetcar downtown to the YMCA in Lee circle. And then I'd work out with weights. I'd work out for hours with in weights. And then I'd take a shower and I'd catch the streetcar back and go home. And the streetcar ride home was, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes by the time, you know, and then I had to wait for it. So, so, so whatever you added, and I had to wait twice because I took the streetcar to Napoleon Avenue, got off. Then I had to wait for the Napoleon, Napoleon Avenue bus in the dark. You know, it was dark at night and it was, you know, it wasn't a terrible neighborhood, but it wasn't great. And, uh, and then catch the bus to within about four blocks of my house and then I'd walk home. Yeah. And then you start, you started wrestling in high school? No. Actually, I, um, I'm probably the one of the first, only people you ever hear of that did this, but I was a weightlifter in high school, and I went up to LSU, and when I was <clears throat> freshman, they used to have punch cards. You'd stand in line to get punch cards to be in a particular class, and then after you got all the classes that you wanted, you would bring them to the central place, and then they'd run them through the computer, and your schedule would get printed. So when I went to the weightlifting thing, the, all the cards were gone. And so the, the guy that was giving out the cards uh, said, well, why don't you take wrestling? 
You know, if you're a strong guy, take wrestling just as a course, a PE course. And so I took the PE course and the wrestling coach was teaching the PE course. And he liked what he saw and he encouraged me to come out for the team. And I ended up captain of the team at LSU. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But I didn't wrestle in high school. Yeah, you don't really hear that sort uh, that story too much. Yeah, not too much. Yeah, that's not that's too amazing. many people do that. You know, but you know what's crazy is my son was very much the same kind of nonconformist type person. Um, he graduated from Cornell with a degree in neurobiology. He didn't graduate from high school. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's crazy uh, how things work out sometimes. But you know, it seems to me that. Um, I think the big thing is emotional intelligence, not just raw horsepower, how, how smart you are in figuring things out, but the ability to uh, delayed gratification is such a big thing. The, uh, the feeling, the empathy that you can feel with the reaction that you get from another human being from something that you said or did and being able to modify um, your future actions, not to hurt their feelings if you did, or to figure out a way to give them encouragement or give them the kind of um, feedback which would encourage them to be kinder to you or kinder to the other people in your life so that you make your life better by paying attention to these things. And these are not, this is not necessarily innate intelligence, or maybe it's a combination of innate intelligence and an ability to have empathy for the things that are around you. But um, emotional intelligence is as important or more to teach your children. Uh, and there's a great book on it. Um, uh, the name of the book is Emotional Intelligence. It was recommended by a friend of mine. And the guy's name, it sounds like a Jewish name, but he's not Jewish. I can't remember the name right now. But... Uh, it's definitely something that everyone should spend a little time on trying to figure out how to gain that part of the ability to see the world more clearly and then react to it in a clearer way. Yeah. Yeah, super important. And that, that's not necessarily something that you can tell people and they just get it. It's kind of something that you have to learn through time. Right. I mean, and, and the thing about reading a book about it is that it turns your attention in that direction so that you start noticing it in yourself and others. Right. And then you notice it when you don't apply it. You notice it. You know, there was a, <clears throat> there was a poem called, um, uh, what is the name of it? the oh the the clown's prayer have you ever heard that uh no i could get it it's great i could get it and read it for you but it's uh, it's a short poem but it basically says that the one of the things it says is that sometimes the thing that you didn't say that you could have said is so painful and sometimes it's the thing that you said that you shouldn't have said that's so painful. And knowing when to keep your own counsel and not talk, <clears throat> and knowing when to speak up is a whole nother thing that's so important to making the people around you feel comfortable and, and, and like you and <clears throat> have a richer life. 
Yeah, and then you have a richer life as well. Yes, and I th- yeah, it's that you know, got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, kind of thing. And that's right. Yeah, it's that's it's, right. It really is. I mean, I was talking about this the other day because I used to play poker quite a bit, and you know, I think a lot of people think of maybe people that don't play poker think, well, it's yeah, I'm kind of familiar with the game. It's just about you get if you have good cards, you can win. You know, you make a bet and you can win if you have good cards. If you have bad cards, you know, you fold. And they think, you know, generally that's the the framework. But what happens is that's not always the case. Hmm. Sometimes you could have a pair of bullets. You could have two aces, you know, dealt right off the pre-flop. You're going in. You're like, this is great. I have a great hand. Then you notice other people are betting heavy. You know, well, what do they have? You know, they, they, you have to start thinking, what are they, how, what's their strategy? How are they playing? Do they have something? Do they not have anything? You might be put in a position where you have to lay those cards down to to fold two aces, is you know, or any hand that's that's looking really good right from the get go is an extremely tough decision. But you could, if you're right, you save yourself some money. You you stay in the game, and th- these I I've found through my limited experience of life that the decisions that we need to make that will help improve our lives aren't always so clear and easy to make it might sometimes we have to lay down a good hand and we have to you know hope for the next one or hope that we made the right decision well a lot of times it has to do with um whether or not we're willing to be patient long enough to let things unfold enough for us to get enough information to um make a better decision you know one sometimes the worst decision that you made was to make the decision quickly if you make the decision a little bit longer i don't know how many times i've said to myself damn if i just waited another day you know uh, this would have worked itself out right and so you know there's a window in there it's because you can't wait you that's know, right. 365 that's right. days, that's you right. have to, it's got to be just right. And right. that, that's, I think what you're talking about here with emotional intelligence and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it's really this kind of like intuition, this feeling, this kind of like tuning your know when human radio. Trigger. Yeah. Knowing when the right time is. Finesse. Right. Finesse. You know, exactly. being tuned in and aware of the environment. So let me tell you a poker story. Oh, please. This would be great. So when we're... My parents traveled all over the world, too, and I guess that's where I got the bug. And my grandmother was from the Ukraine, who incidentally said she was from Russia. And she was a very bright lady, and she was always saying really sage stuff. Anyway, my parents would leave my brother and my two sisters, they're all younger than I am, with my grandmother. And she would babysit us while they were traveling around the world. And uh, she would take us, and we would sit down on the living room floor, and she had a big jar of nickels and pennies and dimes and quarters and even half dollars and um, she would push a pile in front of each of us so there were five piles because there was a I have that's four children and we would play poker and grandma would always get all of her money back and so one day at the end of the game I said to grandma I said how come you always win and she says I don't always win she says in fact I don't win any more than any of you the difference is when I realize that I'm going to lose, I get out of the game. You guys stay into the end of every game. You don't want to sit and be spectators. You want to be playing the whole time. So you stay in every game and I get out. And so, and then she looked at me and she said something that stayed with me for the rest of my life. 
She said, it's not what you win when you win that makes the difference in the long run. It's what you lose when you lose. Don't lose and you'll be okay. And, <laughs> and that's really the attitude that I've had through business and the life that I've had. You know, avoid losses. That's the big deal. You know, you know, these people bring to you this get rich quick idea that, you know, if you just risk X, Y, Z, that you've got a chance to make, you know, 100X and 100Y and so forth. Those are the opportunities that you let go unless you're very sure. Because the thing to avoid is losing. Finding a way to win is not the way to go. Because if you don't watch out, a, a loss can take you out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, to circle back on the whole student loan thing, it's like, you know, I, I used to get phone calls from my student loan company when I wasn't making payments. And, you know, they're like, well, you know, this is very financially irresponsible. You know, you're, you're, you made an agreement here and, uh, you know, you owe this money and, uh, you know, um, you know, this contract and things like that. And I would be like, look, I was like, I don't know. I think you got, you guys just made a bad bet on me. Like I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a good prospect to invest in. I didn't graduate high school. Yeah. I smoked weed every day. I listened to Eminem, yeah. played Xbox. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking to borrow money and you just gave it to me. Like that's pretty financially irresponsible of you. I don't think you guys should be doing that. That's, that's pretty bad. That's a poor business decision that you made on your part. <laughs> you know, that's if you a, ask me, that's, you know, I wouldn't really uh, think that that's, that's very uh, financially responsible of you guys. So yeah, it looks like you just placed a bad bet. And uh, you know, I think you probably just have to cut your losses on that. <laughs> <laughs> they don't do that. No, I know. As a I matter know. of fact, I, I um, have fun with them though. Same. Lamar Alexander the other day, it was talking about passing a bill that would garnish the wages of people who are not paying their student loans. And then there was somebody else who came up with an idea, and I don't know, I think it might have even passed some state legislatures, where they um, they said they were going to take your license away from you, your medical license, your law license, your engineering license, whatever it is, take it away from you if you didn't pay the loan. So they are really doubling down on holding these kids or young people to um, a trap that they set for them. You know, slavery has been going on a long time in the world. And oh, yeah. we like to think in our living in our daily modern lives today, so-called modern lives, that uh, or whatever, civilized lives too, even if you want to consider that. What is, we like to consider ourselves civilized, but are we really, you know, it's like, what does that mean? Um, they but, say it's nine meals. Nine meals. Nine meals. Okay. If you miss nine meals, you'll kill your neighbor <laughs> for food. Okay, maybe, yeah. That's what they say. That's that's possibly true, yeah. Um, but, you know, we like to think of ourselves as like, yeah, of course, there's, there's, you know, maybe there's some parts in the world, but for the most part, slavery doesn't exist anymore. I would argue, and I, I know other people that have said this, it's not my idea or anything, but it's like, it's just changed shapes. It's just a different flavor of slavery, you know? And Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we talked earlier about how the, the you were talking about the Borgias using the church to hold people down. The, you know, and when I was in Potosi in, um, in Bolivia, 
which which a lot of people don't realize, at one point was the richest city in the world. Have you heard of Potosi? No, please tell me more. Okay, so the Spanish came, and when when they when they got to Potosi, they got to a believe it or not, a mountain of gold and silver. This mountain is full of gold and silver. They mined it for over a hundred years. I don't know, hundreds of years, a couple, maybe a couple hundred years. They put mines into it, and they kept finding strains of gold and strains of silver in that mine, in that in that uh, mountain. It's a crazy looking mountain. It looks like a, a pyramid. It's it's uh, it's that shape. Anyway, <clears throat> when the Spaniards took over the area, they put in the church, and they told the the, the people that lived there that. Um, they had to tithe to the church. And the tithe that they had to give was one year in the mines. And then while they were working in the mines, they used the old company store technique. You know the company store? What's that? Okay, so I'm going to digress from my story and tell you about the company store. After the slaves were freed in the South, the slaves had no place to go. They had no money. Uh, they had no place to live. They didn't have any food. The slave owner said, okay, you're free. You can go anywhere you want. You can leave whenever you want. We can't buy and sell you. We can't separate your families or any of that stuff. But if you want to work the land like you were before, we'd be happy to rent you a place to stay where you're already staying and sell you the food that we were giving you to eat. And you can stay here and work the land and we'll pay you. But of course, by the end of the year, the loans that they had made from the company store to pay for the food that they were eating and the loans they were making to the slave owners to pay the rent for the places they were staying, they owed more than they did the year before. So they couldn't what, go What kind anywhere. of loans? Like where were the loans coming from? Well, they were loaning them money to, they, in other words, they would go into the store. They would say, okay, the company store. And they'd say, okay, I need milk. I need a dozen eggs. They'd say, okay, they put it on your account, Mike. At the end of the year, when the, when the crop comes in gotcha. and you okay. get your share, okay. then you have to pay us back. The company store is being the, the house, the place, the plantation. The company, the company store was an actual store owned by the plantation right. that the slaves would go to to buy their supplies. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. Okay? And, and the same thing that was used in the coal miners on the East Coast and uh, if you remember, there was a guy by the name of Tennessee Ernie Ford who wrote a song about it, uh, Oh My Soul to the Company Store. That's what that was about. Okay. Okay. So they did the same thing to the people in, the, in Potasi, in the, in the, in the um, gold and silver mines. The uh, church started them off with a tithe for the year, and by the end of the year, they owed so much money and they, you know, for, for the explosives that they were using to mine and for the tools that they had to buy and or rent or they had to pay for the food for their families. By the end of the year, they owed enough money that they never got out of the mines. Never. Their entire lives. And they, they, they the church did that. The church, in cooperation with the mine owners, uh, created that situation. They turned them into slaves. And so it's not unusual. It's not sure, right. And I, I think maybe the modern church of today is the corporation, the, in, the multinational, international corporation, right? Right, right, right. And, you know, you talk about 
the government doing things that you don't want them to do or spending money the way you don't want to spend them. Recently, we had the uh, Citizens United decision, which allows corporations to spend as much money as they want on political campaigns or political ideas or things that they want to push forward. Well, think about it. I own stock in the corporation. I didn't agree to spend my money to support a campaign against global warming. I didn't do that, you know? And they say, well, you know, sell your stock. We're doing it. We're spending the money that way. But this is, you know, this is a corporation I put money in, you know, I bought stock. I've got a, I'm I'm an owner. I didn't agree to spend the money that way. Well, too bad. Sell your stock, you know? So we have a a lot of that, that that goes on, you know, people just taking advantage of, of the situation and, and you've seen this kind of thing, as we were talking about before, you've seen this kind of thing in your travels all around the world. Is there any place that you visited in particular that you saw like, wow, what a difference or, you know, what a different way that they're doing this, you know, that they're kind of wrangling the people here? Well, actually, I, um, you know, they talk, we always talk about how, yeah, the justice system has problems, but it's the best system. It isn't the best system. Let me tell you about a system that's better. I don't remember the name of the country. I think it might have been Taiwan, but it was, it was one, of the, uh, one of the countries in the East. Um, what they did was this. When you went to law school, the first thing they did was they divided you into two groups. You were a public lawyer or a private lawyer, okay? And so the public lawyers learned what they needed to do to do their public work. And the public lawyers then, when they graduated from law school, they... Um, were either they, they were going they were given briefs so they 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 were told okay in this particular case you're going to be the prosecutor okay and then they would give a, uh, somebody else a brief and they would say in that same case you're going to be the defense attorney and then somebody else in the same case another lawyer you're going to be the judge in this case now in the next case when they bring you the brief they give you the brief and they say okay mike in this case you're going to be the judge or in this case, you're going to be the defense attorney. And then the next case comes along, and maybe you're going to be the defense attorney again, or maybe you're going to be the judge again, or maybe you're going to be the prosecutor again. So you've got 30 files in your office, and seven of them you're judge, and 13 of them you're prosecutor, and 10 of them you're defense attorney. Okay? So you don't get a mindset. You don't have a mindset for a particular point of view. Everybody's not guilty. Everybody's not innocent. The, you know, each case you, it's your job just to do your job from that point of view in that particular case. Okay. And then the judges, it's not like a trial like we have in the United States. What happens is the judge will say, okay, now the guy who's playing judge now, he's the judge in this case. He tells the prosecutor, okay, I'm going to give you until April 30th to bring me all the evidence that you have that the man's guilty, okay? Then, so the prosecutor says, okay, judge, I'm bringing in something Tuesday, okay? And then they check with the defense attorney. Okay, great, that's good. We'll get together on Tuesday. He brings his material to the judge, whether it's documents or whether it's a witness or whatever it is, and the judge hears that, and he puts that in his head some place where he's or writes it down it takes his notes whatever it is then the prosecutor does that again and again and again okay april 30th comes and the judge says okay are you done are you finished 
You know, I told you you had to be finished. And well, no, judge, actually, I need an extra day or two. You get, you ask for that. The judge gives it to you and doesn't give it to you. And that's over with. Now it's the defense attorney's time. So he's going to do it. Or the judge might say to the prosecutor in the middle, he says, you know, you brought me that guy's wife. I want to talk to the husband, too. Get the husband in here. I want to hear what he's got to say. Because he must have seen something. Okay, so the judge then, he can ask for evidence for the prosecutor to bring. And then... The defense attorney does the same thing, and the same process passes. And so after the process has gone on for a while, then the judge says, okay, on September the 20th, I am going to make a decision unless one of you brings me something else. I'm ready to, I'm ready to rule, okay? And if he doesn't get interrupted on December, September 20th, he gives his decision. Now that is a system that's likely to come out with justice. Okay. Sure. Yeah. More okay. likely. There's yeah. always the there's always the possibility that the judge could have his own agenda and be corrupt as of well. Of course, but, but we have that here too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, like we said, it's never going to be perfect, but it could be a little bit better. No. No. Yeah. No. No. The point the point that I'm trying to make is I'm not saying that that ought to be our system. It would be good if that were our system, but. The point is, is that we just take it for granted as Americans that everything we do is the best. Yeah, well, okay. we're told that all the time. That's right. And, and if you Pledge just, allegiance to the yeah. flag. Yeah. And if you just go out into the world with your eyes open, you're going to see things that are better. Let me give you another example. Sure. Okay. Here in the United States, we make ethanol out of corn. Stupid. We're making one product out of another product. We are eliminating a lot of food that we could sell to someone else or that people that could eat starve. We, that's stupid. Look what they do in South America. They make ethanol out of bag ash. You know what bag ash is? No, what's that? Okay. Bag ash are the husks of sugarcane. So what happens is they, they plant sugarcane, they crush the sugarcane, they get the sugar out of the sugarcane, and the bag ash, which is the refuge, the pieces, they make ethanol out of that. So instead of making ethanol out of a product, they make ethanol out of a byproduct, okay? Or refuse, whatever you want to call it. And so they, it makes more sense, okay? And so there are a lot of things that we do in the United States that make no sense at all. Right, like, yeah. And, and, you know, we haven't, we've decided that we're going to hold water for another time. But again, we do the same stupid thing. We're destroying water in favor of getting oil. Yeah. Well, yeah. we could talk about that. I mean, we talk, we were talking about that before and, and it just, it's good because in my mind, it, it, the way that it crystallizes in my mind is these things that we're doing sort of we're it's like we're on this autopilot unconscious just keep driving towards the thing without kind of like stopping and thinking about what's the real goal here what kind of society what what kind of environment are we um creating for ourselves to live in because human beings can adapt to pretty much almost anything. You know, we can adapt to this kind of like dystopian garbage land, toxic, uh, you know, smoggy, polluted future. Uh, and we can adapt to that, this like technocratic, you know, everybody's watching everyone all the time. But at the end of the day, it's like, what do we do? Why would we want to do that? Why? Like, you know, it's like getting back to the basics all we really need are just like the basic kind of things that human beings lived with until we got this idea to start, you know, building giant things. You know, it's, it's, it goes back to this, right? It goes back to the balance and the nuance because 
progress innovation technology is great for solving problems and doing, you know, coming up with solutions and having a better uh, understanding of our world and our environment so we can get along better. But when you take it too far, right? When you take it too far, you lose sight of like, well, what the hell are we even doing here? What's the whole point of this? Why are we, who are we serving? Are we serving something that's not serving us? It certainly seems that way. Right. And we create a lot of times, we create false needs, needs that we, for things that we don't really need. You know, we're convinced by the advertising that we need something. And like you said, we may go in a direction that doesn't really give us any more peace. It doesn't give us any more of uh, what it takes to be happy. Like our, our jungle lord who was happy with um, sleeping in a bed with fleas. I mean, you know, he's, he's, uh, that's as good as it gets. So when do we, when do we say, you know, look at the guru who sits in the mountains, okay? And he's, he's at peace and he's got almost nothing. He's got almost nothing to eat and not a comfortable place to sleep, but he's happy. We, we create our faults, these false needs, and then we get on this track like a, like a, a squirrel in a cage with a, on a, a, on a, a running around in a in a circle and we're doing that and we're not noticing that we're not getting anywhere we're not getting closer to the goals that we want and what is the goal what is the goal is the goal to be is it just some kind of shallow happiness where you go to a movie and you're happy for two hours and then you go home and you're depressed again that's not it Okay. At some point you want to say to yourself, I'm happy in my own skin. I'm happy in the life that I've, that I've cut out for myself, whatever it is. You know, some people are happy working every day of their life. You know, they, they can't even consider the idea of retiring, even though they already have everything they have because work has become their identity. That's who they are. They can't stop being a lawyer or they can't stop being an engineer. Or they can't stop being a bus driver or whatever it is that they are because they want to get up in the morning and they want to have some purpose and they have not been able to figure out a way to have that purpose without having the job. And they're happy. And if they're happy, that's fine. And I don't want to upset that happiness. If that's what that makes them happy, that's great. But I would like a world where everybody has the opportunity to find whatever it is that they're happy without encouraging them to want things that they don't need and work themselves into a, a frenzy or a world that enshackles them. And I keep going back to the student loan system because it's got to change. It has to change. It, it, is, it, is, it is a cancer on our society in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point to go back to because it affects me. It affects a lot of people, probably a lot of people listening to this show. And it's a major, major, like you said, cancer. And it's, you know, there's others too, but this is a big one. And if, if I look at, if I think, and I agree with you, the reason why I agree with what you said before about raising your child is that I believe that's how, if we were a wise and smart group of people in society, that that's the way that we would want to go about advancing and progressing is to you know, have the ability to, to think and to figure things out. Education is so important. All of the greatest uh, you know, you look at hunter-gatherer tribes all around the world. You know, we look at these ancient civilizations. 
all of the really great ones had a system of initiating the youth into, into adulthood, teaching them the ways of the tribe, the ways of the group to honor and respect and to live in balance and harmony and be, to be wise and to be strong and to be firm and have integrity. And that's, yeah, that's something that we've, we've kind of lost, I think, along the way. Well, one thing we've lost is this rites of passage thing that they have in, in, in the ancient societies. I mean, the Jews still have the bar mitzvah. But, you know, this idea, and I think there's, uh, the Christians have the communion and things like that, but I don't know whether or not that involves the learning that's required for the bar mitzvah. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's pretty, uh, you know, I read a lot of like Joseph Campbell works and um, kind of mythologist Robert Bly, Robert Moore. Robert Bly is the, the one that, that really turned me on to this idea of the rites of passage. Right, yeah. Yeah. As the, the story of Iron John the boy, yeah. you know, becoming a man. And it's really kind of, you know, what you were saying before about figuring it out, making some mistakes, you know, learning as you go, right. you know, that sort of thing. Allowing a child to make mistakes that yeah. aren't going to kill it, you know? Right, right. That aren't, the, you know, that kind of thing, you know? I mean, it's it's almost like uh, the, 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 the family that says, you know, I've got to make sure that everything is absolutely pristine in the house. And the doctor's saying, it's okay if the kid eats a little mud, you know? Yeah, he's not going to die. He's not going to die, and yeah. maybe he'll, maybe he's going to get some antibodies that are going to be useful to him. So sometimes skinning your knee, you're not, and making you're, you're a not mistake. allowed to eat uh, mud though, because the government has a law that says you can't dig a hole of mud in your right. backyard. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, you're certainly can't. not allowed to get rainwater. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? That. Yeah, it's insane. But it's just this 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 idea of you know this way to sort of quote unquote govern or guide or show this the way of the shower comes from the way that it's come from for all the years before we got into this big mess of civiliz of, of of civilization and religion and governments and all this stuff that we have today was to be the what the older people to pass down wisdom to make the younger people strong so that they can lead when they come of age and we we just like you know in in this the the point of me bringing all this up and talking about this involving with the student loans is that we live in this world today where the older generation for the most part is predatory against the younger generation and there's a division and we saw that happen in the 70s right. we saw that happen with the Vietnam war a betrayal of the youth and its cannibalism of the species that's right you know the thing is that they talk about how they can't afford, you know, I, I say we should have free education and they say, yeah, well, who's going to pay for it? So, well, let me just give you my idea about that. If we had a utopian society, suppose we had a utopian society, complete utopia, okay, what would we do? Well, one thing we wouldn't do is we wouldn't have to spend any money on armies. If we had a utopian society, we wouldn't have to worry about war, Right. Okay, if we had a utopian society, we wouldn't have to worry about crime. So we wouldn't have to spend any money on police. And we wouldn't need any criminal defense attorneys. And we wouldn't need any prosecutors. And we wouldn't need any judges in criminal court. If we had a utopian society, we wouldn't need all that stuff. So if we had a utopian society, what would we spend our money on? And the answer to that is if we had a utopian society, we would spend our money pretty much on two things, mostly. We would spend our money on education, and we would spend our money on health care. 
That's what we would do. Because we can't, we can't say a utopian society, we're not going to have germs can't hurt us anymore. We can't do that. Okay. Germs are things that we're going to have to deal with even in a utopian society. Okay? Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think, and, and nowadays it's like we have germs, we have all these things. So we need to combat them. We That's need to right. prescribe things to them. Whoa. But I think if in my version of a utopian society, we have such a smart and wise and educated interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, you know, healthcare system that really promotes people functioning to their highest level and encourages preventative you know, measures so that we're really living our fullest, best lives and we're educated so we can explore and create and imagine. Absolutely. And part of our healthcare system, especially if 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 we got to utopian society, would be free. Okay, so if it's free, we don't have to spend time filling out insurance forms. We don't have to spend time getting permission from the insurance company. Well, it's technically we, not free, but it's the way the, the well. The way what I mean is, by is that, that is, we all you, decide to come together to say we're going to spend our we money would on like this. To spend our money on this, this seems important to lift exactly. our species up, right. To create better things, right. Everybody, please voluntarily contribute. You know, your portion well, to you, making this goal possible. Well, your you know? contribution goes toward making sure that people who need health care get their health care and people who have not been educated to get their education. And to the extent that a person is capable, I mean, they would be wasting their money if they tried to give me a PhD in physics. I'm not going to get there, okay? Now, I liked physics. I made an A in physics when I took it. But I know that there's a certain area of physics which is maybe beyond my intellect, okay? But... To the extent that I'm capable of learning and want to learn, I should be able to go to college and get that education. It's better for society. It's better for everyone. We talked about that earlier. But a utopian society would concentrate on those two things because those are the only two things that we would want to spend money on. We don't need to spend, like I say, on police or army and all that kind of stuff. And, yes, right. And, and, the, so, and then, we, then we'd spend a certain amount of money on inf- infrastructure. Right. We would build roads. We would build hospitals. We would build uh, the things that are necessary, schools. And we would build uh, solar generators or wind generators for energy, whatever it is. That's what we would spend our money on. Um, so the closer we get to a utopian society, the more we spend on education and healthcare. So it's not going in the wrong direction to spend more money for education. It's going no, in the not. right direction. Yeah. And it's 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 just about making sure that it's done in a, in a proper way that's that's fair and makes sense. I always hear people saying like, "Oh, but you know, like it has to work this way or it has to work that way. We'll figure out the way that it, that it could work." But basically what we're saying here is that as people who are wanting to learn and to grow, and this starts at a young age by parents teaching their children in the proper way of how to think, how to make good decisions, these sorts of things, that what now what's worth putting our attention on? What's worth transferring a portion of our energy and time to? And if we can come up with the, because that's really all it is, money, you know, money is just is just a transfer of, of energy, and that we want to direct, you know, that's that's usually guided by our values and these are the things that we can imbue in others in order to lift ourselves up 
because everybody has the lower self and the higher self. We get pulled into our lower self realms. Oftentimes when we get angry, we get upset, we make reactions, we do things that are stupid, we're not thinking, but there's always a choice that's present there. When we were talking to that woman that we saw on the street yesterday shoveling, who works with uh, in prisoners trying to be nonviolent, uh, alternatives to nonviolence, there's a little window of choice right in there. There's room. And like you were saying, you can flex that muscle and grow that room so you can make the right decision. So if we can f- be aware of these things, know about them, and transfer our energy and attention and put our time towards them, we can create a better, more peaceful world for ourselves. But also, that's the thing that we leave behind. And and you said it on the podcast before, we leave the world to be a better place. So let's leave this show for for people to come out feeling like, you know, that this is a, a better place. And maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about like your experience, your life experience and what you, you may share that with like some of the listeners and and uh you know who are out there probably around my age and younger, uh, to go out into the world and uh you know well, I Take think it that, away. you know, you've heard this, the expression of selling your soul to the devil. Right. Okay. The devil doesn't really come visit you and you sell him your soul. In my view, what really happens is some opportunity presents itself in your life for you to do something which has no integrity or is dishonest, or lying in a way that hurts someone else, or gives you an unfair advantage. And when you decide to do that, you just sold your soul to the devil. Because you have to be able to look in the mirror and point to that person in the mirror and say, you're a good person. And as soon as you decide to do that, as soon as you decide to do that dishonest thing, as soon as you decide to do, to come say that lie, to take something that doesn't belong to you, uh, to um, uh, make a decision that steals your soul, then you've sold your soul to the devil. And you've gone down that road where you can't look yourself in the eye anymore. You have, because you know, you know you did that. You know you did it. And you knew when you were doing it. I'm not talking about the kind of thing where you make a mistake and you do something and you say, doggone, I wish I hadn't done that. If I hadn't done that, that other person wouldn't have had this problem or whatever it is. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about making a volitional decision to do something that you know is wrong. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you decide who you are and what you're going to stand for and who you're going to be in your life. And it's that person, that person in the mirror, that's the most important person because that's the one you can't fool. And if I would make a recommendation for people is that they maintain that relationship with the person in the mirror. Maintain that relationship so that you can look at yourself and say, okay, I know I have made some mistakes and I have hurt some people 
And if I had to do certain things over, there's things that I would definitely do differently. But I can honestly look myself in the eye and say, and I'm saying, I'm not saying that I can do this because I've done bad things too. And I'm, and I'm sorry for them. And I think back about them and I think to myself, boy, that wasn't right. I shouldn't have done that. And I have. Okay. So I can't say that I'm pure, you know, deserve to be the Pope or something, but we should all strive to be able to look in the mirror and say, I'm doing the right thing. That what I'm doing is not because of the selfish motives. And I'm not saying that selfishness is something that we shouldn't indulge in. Selfishness in many ways is a good thing. Selfishness is what causes us to want to get a better job. And how do we get a better job? We get a better education. How do we get a better job? We become more useful and uh, to the people in our society. They pay us more because we are able to provide a good or a service or, or something that... Um, that is valuable to them, so we get paid more. So selfishness is not necessarily a bad thing, but the point is is that if you're willing to do something that you know is evil, that is wrong uh, for a selfish reason, uh, or you do it just for the glee of making someone unhappy, um, that you've got to avoid. That you've got to avoid. If you want to be at peace when you're sitting on the porch when you're old, then you want to be able to do it so that you can look in the mirror. And then the last bit of advice that I would give to people is exactly the advice that my grandmother from Russia gave me. I told you she was a, a sage. I asked her one day, I said, Grandma, what's it like to be old? And she said, well, you know, Paul, you don't realize you're getting old. You get tired. And after a while, you get so tired that there's just not much that you want to do or you can do anymore. And at the end of it is basically rocking in a chair or sitting on a sofa and thinking about your life and thinking about your memories. And then she looked at me really hard and she said, but you don't have those memories unless you make them. And my advice would be, that if there's something that you want to do, do it. Don't wait. Don't get to be sitting on the porch when you're old and saying, you know, I always wanted to see the Northern Lights, but I never went to see them. Man, and you've lived, you've lived such a, a life, you know, you've, you've traveled, you've raised a family, you worked as a trial lawyer in New Orleans. You were on the wrestling team. You, you played. The, you learned how to play the guitar. You speak other languages. You've. We met at an ayahuasca center in Peru, drinking ayahuasca with shamans in Peru. <laughs> You've been traveling across the the hippie trail and have all kinds of stories from that. And you know, yeah, it's 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 really like. If you really want to understand what this world is about and if you want to understand what yourself is about and this this experience that we're existing in that we don't know if there's any we don't know. So get out there, do it, try it, try it on. Right. Taste just it. Just don't hurt anybody else. Yeah. Just be good. Yeah, be good. Yeah. And you know that feeling when you're looking at yourself 
You know that feeling oh, when you're yeah. doing something right, when you're doing something wrong. When you, you know, if you're not a psychopath or a sociopath, and we know 1% of the population is. so Right. There's some people <laughs> who, who actually can do wrong things and it, and it doesn't get to them. Right. That's, that's troubling. We're not going to be able to talk them out of that. Right. All we could do is kind of prepare ourselves to be aware that that exists. Well, to pay attention to the dangers in your society. But, you know, if you look at our society, as dangerous as it is, and as fraught as it is with uh, people who would hurt us or take things from us that they don't deserve, we're safer now than we've ever been in the history of humans. You know, yeah. we can go into a bus station with 500 people there that we don't know, and we're in no danger at all. Yeah. We can get on an airplane and fly to uganda and get off the plane and not expect to be attacked by the locals yeah and in fact expect that we can go to the rest to the hotel and find out what's going on and be treated as a human being and and leave with our money and our leave with our money and our lives and and had an experience someplace you, you couldn't do that for much of history right yeah you know? this is uh i i believe in in the evolution of of consciousness because i believe that by exposing ourselves to novelty and diversity over time that we are exposing ourselves to our subjective conscious our subjective consciousness the way that we perceive the world the way that we see things we're just a part of this entire thing this entire field of consciousness and we're experiencing life from a certain point of view and the game is to experience that and understand from all kinds of different points of view, subjective under, you know, consciousness, understanding itself subjectively. And how fun is that? You get to meet interesting people. Everybody has different experiences, different stories, different cultural backgrounds. And the diversity and the novelty and the experience of that makes the, the candle worth its salt, as Alan Watts used to say. It makes it worth it. Absolutely right. And if we go back to the analogy of the table, okay, when we look at it from a distance at the short side and it's four feet, we're seeing a one-dimensional table. The idea that we go to life and we see it from different sides gives it greater dimension. It means more to us. We understand more of the tableness of it. Yeah. So that we understand more <laughs> yeah. of 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 the um of the essence of it. Yeah. And so seeing it from one side, seeing it only from the Republican side, only from the Democratic side. But I would say one more thing that we need to do as a people to really move forward. And that is we've got to stop voting against a candidate. We got to stop doing that. The Democrats have to. The Democrats that care about this world have to stop saying, "I'm voting against the Republican." The Republicans of the world have to stop saying, "I'm voting against the Democrat." And can I add? And most people have to say, "Oh, I'm not going to vote for a third party because that's just going to be a waste." I would like to see more ideas, more in inclusive, you know, diverse ideas. And you vote for what you believe in. Well, the point that point I'm trying to make <laughs> is is that require them to give you a candidate to vote for. Don't vote for the candidate least, the one that you like the least. Yeah. 
I mean, dislike the least. Don't vote against. Vote for. And if they don't give you a candidate that'll vote for, don't vote. Let them know. I'm a Democrat, let's say. I am, let's say I'm a Democrat. And I say, okay, well, I don't like the Republicans. I'm going to vote for the Democratic candidate. Whoever they put up. Well, that's ridiculous. I need to say to the Democratic Party, give me somebody to vote for. Mm-hmm. Give me somebody to vote for. You know, require that. Right. Because then, then what you've done is you've put them in that situation where they have to actually provide to you a candidate who is going to have some semblance of doing the right thing. Right. The people have to be informed, though, of what that is. And, and well, that's you know, true. that's a whole nother bag. And we talked about that. We talked about that. Yeah, we talked about that. We can talk about that. And that's, and that's, that. that's a real problem yeah. because we, we, know, we know that society is set up and is being set up even more and more to take away from us the time that it would take for us to be informed right, enough to right. make those decisions. Right. You know, I, and, you know, they talk about how um, they're going to bring democracy to other countries. Well, how about bringing democracy to here? Right. How about saying that you can't be elected president unless you get more than 50%? Because if you did that, if you'd actually turned it into a democracy, then a third-party candidate could get votes. Because what could happen is if a third-party candidate got enough votes to keep either of the other candidates for getting more than 50%, then you'd have to have a runoff. And if you had to have a runoff, then that would mean that the first time around you could vote for the third-party candidate because you would know that you're going to get to vote again if he doesn't win, and if nobody gets more than 50%, you'll get to vote again. So if he gets eliminated or she gets eliminated, then you get to vote again. And if that happens, if you're free to vote for a third-party candidate, then one day one of the third-party candidates is going to get more than a third of the votes. And as soon as he does or she does, then one of the major party candidates is going to get eliminated, and suddenly we are going to be in a system where somebody who knows what they're doing and who's sufficiently interested in doing the right thing can get elected. Sure, yeah, and you know, that's a possibility. I think that it's it takes time and it takes incremental change, you know, I mean, because we can there's a lot of people that want to see certain things happen, but it sometimes takes a little bit here, a little bit there, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the Berlin wall falls like that, you know, overnight, you know, they didn't think communism was going to end and then it ends. Um, so, you know, maybe there could be change can present itself in any kind of way, I think. And, you know, what I, what I would like to see is I think one of the biggest problems is the homogenization of everything, you know, the Western imperialism around the world imposing its values everywhere. But even here at home, you know, the, we have a very large, diverse population. And, you know, maybe the key is to getting back to more of like a hunter gatherer tribal sort of style where you have people. I mean, the United States was supposed to be that, it was supposed to be a group of independent states or countries that would sort of, you know, report to the this central location in case there was a war or in case there was a problem, you know, something that needed to be disputed or arbitrated. But that's that's grown, you know, that's grown tremendously. So it's like whenever we have this, large corporations, large religions, right? You know, Catholicism, Judaism, even, you know, Buddhism, whatever, 
you have you know uh is islam right yeah uh yeah so you have these ones that kind of rise to the top but they're not the only ones they're not the only ones in town they're the, they're just the biggest ones and i think whenever you get we were talking about rome before the fall of rome the greatest empire the world has ever seen right empire not the happiest people the most satisfied people so i think i don't know some kind of like breaking apart into smaller areas would help better serve the people you know like voting with your dollar buying locally you know getting involved in local things and local issues and that that really can make i think an impact um because to have to have like this centralized you know place that's in command of you know millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people you're going to have problems that you're not capable of really dealing with and the, sometimes the solutions are going to be like shit that we've seen stuff that we see playing out these well, terrible solutions that don't really work well that's certainly true but i to play devil's advocate for a moment sure though, please there's there are parts of this country um where prejudice is accepted and if it wasn't for the federal government coming in and making some rules that required people to treat other people in a just equal way those areas of the country wouldn't get there and so there is something to be said for the nation state to impose itself on the um yeah, I, I, I think that this is also another area where we're looking at where's that fine t- – how do you tune that guitar to sound sweet? Exactly. And not yeah. overstep. You, you don't want to be crushing people's skulls and throwing people in you know, prison camps. On the other hand, things. you're not going to allow them to have segregated schools. You want to try and do the right thing without being too – commanding and forceful in your endeavor to do so. And I think that's the way that human beings operate. Hierarchies are natural. People are going to come together. They're going to want to impose their will, but the citizens need to be informed as well. The people, the human beings living well, there need to I be informed. I think that we've gotten to that on a number of occasions in this conversation. Yeah. And that is an important part of it. We have to have an informed populace. Yeah. And that's why I'm so strong for the idea that if you're capable of learning and you want to learn, the state should provide the education to you. That's why it's so important. And so I'm getting back again to my to the idea of my book. The whole the thing is, we have to go to free education. We have to go to um, at least education that is affordable, so that the the, the kid in the ghetto. Uh, or the kid in the in the in the tribe in Africa that, that was brilliant, that that kid gets to go to school, that kid gets a scholarship or whatever yeah. it is that he needs, or that the, at least that there is a junior college and a state college system, public system that they can go there. Maybe, so maybe they can't go to Harvard or they can't go to Yale or they can't go to Cornell where it costs sixty thousand dollars a year to go to school. Maybe they can't. Yeah. Okay, but that's okay if they can go to a good school. They can go to a school that's good enough that's going to give them the education that they need. Yeah, you know, if you talk, if you look at Malcolm Gad- Gadwell, if you read his book, yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, Gladwell, the, the book that he wrote about um, David and Goliath. Sure. Okay, you remember he talked about how it's not always a, a, an advantage to get into an Ivy League school. 
you might get into an Ivy League school, and as a result, you get a C in biology, and that keeps you out of medical school. And if you'd gone to some state college in some small place, um, you might have gotten straight A's and gotten into med school, and you'd have been a great doctor. Yeah. And so it's not always an advantage to go to a... But the point that I'm trying to make is that there ought to be a public system of universities that's free for the kids. And, you know, you want to have a, a tough exam to get in? Fine. You want to have, you know, you have to make certain grades in high school to get in? That's fine, too. Or that there's some kind of a test that can test the kids that are the nonconformists of the world who are just as bright but for some reason or other can't work within the system. In yeah, different kind of intelligence. Different yeah. kind of intelligence. Yeah. Different kind Set up of app- alternative programs, alternative encourage program. the arts and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Well, maybe, maybe not even not the arts. I mean, maybe some, some of these kids didn't do well in high school, didn't make a good grade on the SAT. They worked for three years in a, in a, a garage or something and they decided they wanted to go back, they could be a physicist. I mean, you know, yeah. that could still happen. Well, I, I think, you know, like, I think the schools, need. we need to figure out a way to really incentivize. And I think, like, you know, I think the state's involvement in them, I don't want the state, you know, determining what the curriculum is, at least not this current state. I mean, I think if we're talking about here, like we're able to kind of learn and grow and see things from the big picture and we can figure out as a society how to organize in the best way that serves people. If we can get to that point, then maybe we can have some kind of, you know, delegation because we know, okay, good. But it all, it all starts with the parents at home being involved and, and really kind of, making sure what your kid is learning and experiencing is good and correct and, and right and serving. And, you know, maybe there's, and, and I think that like right now, you know, the way that we, uh, you know, we don't necessarily have a free market. We have this corny, uh, this uh, crony, you know, corporate owned government, you know, thing. Uh, But if we had some kind of system where we were able to say, okay, you know, like, Teachers should be paid like what professional athletes are paid, in my opinion, or Hollywood movie stars or doctors, lawyers. That's the salary that, a, that someone that's teaching this new being that has come into the world to, to what they could be and how they could develop fully, right? So that's like one of the most important things. Like if we really cared about our teachers, they would be treated like rock stars. The best teachers would be making millions of dollars, you know? And – uh and so having some kind of incentive structure, you know, would be great for that. You know, look, if you're a great teacher, if you perform really great, you're going to get financially rewarded, right? And what bet? Why? Why not? You're you're teaching the kids this this amazing stuff. But we're we're swimming in the sewage of the agenda setting, you know, crony corporate government system. So it's all a mess. Well, I agree with you 100%. I was a teacher for four years. I taught at a Catholic school. Oh, shit. I, I didn't taught, know that. Yeah, I taught calculus and coached the wrestling team. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I not just calculus, but I taught calculus class and the trigonometry class. And, yeah, both my parents are teachers. Yeah, and I think that te- I agree with you 100%. The teachers are the aristocrats of society. I would have stayed a teacher my whole life if they would have paid me a living salary, but they didn't. I couldn't afford to have a family. I had friends who were teachers, great teachers. I remember uh, one, the head of the English department in the school I was in and the head of the math department in the school that I was in. They were 
brilliant men and they and they worked really hard it was a boys school so most of the teachers were men um the uh they were brilliant men and they cared about what they were doing and they were doing a great job and they weren't being paid a living wage it didn't make any sense and they would go to a party and they were a school teacher and somebody else was a doctor or a lawyer and it was like they were an underling like a like a, an employee type person yeah, yeah. and and the truth is that they were doing some of the best work they were doing the work that really needed to be done right and 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 i agree with you 100 percent. the whole attitude toward teachers we should pay them enough so that so that people really quality people want to do it that's right and so that other people will recognize that if you want to be a teacher you have to be a quality person that would be a great step forward it's insane to me because it just shows you what we value in our culture today it's right. like Teachers get treated like shit. Kids get treated like shit. My my girlfriend was like doing some babysitting work on the side. They're like, oh yeah, you want to watch three kids pay you twelve dollars an hour? It's like that's what you think of your 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 children. You know, the, the yeah. teachers that are teaching our children in school. Oh yeah, we'll pay you like thirty grand a year, or whatever starting salary for a teacher. That's what we value. That's the how much we value the young minds that are going to shape the mold the future. So it's all screwed up. It's all backwards. I, I, I could talk about this stuff and we're going to talk about this. It's just not going to be recorded, but we talk about this stuff all the time. I love hanging out with you, Paul. I think that you have just some awesome ideas and ways of thinking and stories and wisdom that, that you share. And, um, you know, for people that are interested, you got to go check out Disorder, the book. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's on Paul's website, plcats.com. You can follow him on Facebook you, too. You can also get it in Amazon under plcats. Plcats. On Amazon, the book is called Disorder, and uh, it's great. You know, it, it talks about the a lot of the things that we're talking about in this show today. You know, we're we're are being brought up in this book in a very compelling uh, suspense thriller murder uh, trial, uh, you know, fashion for a fiction work. And I, and I, I was engrossed the, the, from the first couple pages. And of course I was, because you have great stories, you tell great stories and you're just a, a great guy with, uh, with a lot of good things to say. So man, it's, I think we did three hours. So yeah. I, I, and like I said, yeah. we could do more. This has been fantastic yeah. though. Thank, thanks for being on it. If, sure. if there's anything else you want to say, let, let the people. No, know. no, that's good. Thank yeah. you. That's uh, I like the way that ended. PL cats. Thanks for coming on. We're going to do it again. Okay. And, we'll we're, again. and we're going to be creating a podcast for you. So people tune in, tune in for that. Great. Thank awesome. you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. guys enjoyed that conversation as much as i did hope you guys like these podcasts and enjoy them and if you do please spread the podcast share it tell a neighbor tell a coworker, tell a friend tell a cat tell a mouse tell a dog tell an ant tell a firefly tell whoever you tell share it spread it like it all that good stuff if you if you really love the show you want to go a step further you really want to help us out leave a five-star rating and review on apple podcasts um, and go to patreon.com patreon slash mike brank 
and um, patreon.com slash Mike Brank. And you can donate as little as a dollar a month, $2 a month, whatever you want. Help support the show that way as well. But remember, I love you guys no matter what you do. I just love that you tune in and you enjoy these podcasts. Message me. I like hearing feedback. Get in touch with me on Instagram, Mike Adelic Podcast, Mike Brank on Facebook as well. And um, thanks to our sponsors, Synchro and Hemp Bombs. If you want a discount on ketogenic and plant-based nutrition products, go to Synchro and type in the code uh, Mike Adelic at checkout to get 20% off. And they have amazing ketogenic chocolate fudge called Keto Mana that I have all the time because it's has like no sugar and carbs in it. So it's great. And, um, and it's delicious. And if you want CBD, uh, go to hempbombs.com and get 15% off all your CBD needs, I guess. And uh, just enter the code Mike15 at checkout. But thank you once again to everybody. Thanks to Danny Barnett and Galaxia for the music, the intro and the outro. I love you all. Peace.